0: Wrestling Federation proudly presents Wrestlemania! The champion, Ric Flair, defends the title against the number one contender, the macho man, Randy Savage. The maniacal, Sid Justice, goes one-on-one with the immortal Paul Hogan, in what could prove to be Paul Hogan's farewell match. It's a double main event! It's Wrestlemania!
1: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 170 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke, back once again to continue our series looking at 1992 in the World Wrestling Federation. If you joined us for our previous episode on episode 169, you heard us talk about January and February of 1992 in the WWF. We are hitting March today, one month, but there's an awful lot of news. And as always joining me on this voyage, looking at March of 1992 in the WWF is the one and only Kyle Ross from Top Rope Nation by way of Cleveland, Ohio. Kyle, my God, thank you very much for joining me today on a podcast. That I have been excited about for weeks. Liam, are you sure you don't want to do the Monday Night Wars? Because I really feel that's what
2: your people want and I'm <laughs> feeling not wanted. I, I have seen the comments. <laughs> on facebook i know the people want to get back to the Monday night wars but by god i am so happy to be here today in all seriousness to talk march of 1992 with you as well we should point out uh, wrestlemania 8 so we'll be hitting the first five yes. days of april as well but really a watershed uh, thirty. March is a uh, 31-day month, so a watershed 36-day
1: period in company history that we will be talking about here. And boy, do we have a lot of notes. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, but if there was ever a time to point out just how many notes there were, folks, we can't stress enough. We have covered—you've heard us do these podcasts—we have covered months in two hours. Today, we're covering, as 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 Kyle says, there about 36 days. And this may take hours. The last podcast we did came just under four hours of total total time. Uh, this may be touching that today. We're going to see. But there is so much to talk about. And Kyle, I know, uh, since we have that much to get to, we're going to go right into it. And there's a couple of housekeeping notes, I think, that you wanted to touch on uh, for last time.
2: Yeah, just... Um... You know, just to reiterate what you just said, we have more notes for today than we've had for any multi-month section previously, going all the way back to the start of 1990, about 15 full pages as we attempt to do both Titan Gate and WrestleMania 8 in under four hours. That may be insanity, Mr. O'Rourke. Now, I may have been insane on the last show because I misspoke on how many pay-per-view buys the 92 Rumble did. I said 320,000. It was actually 260,000. Not sure what I was thinking there. I wonder if I... Quoted an old observer and not the most up well. And I obviously didn't quote the most updated information, but it was 260. It was still the lowest buy rate of all time for the Rumble. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess moving to today, fun that we're doing this now, isn't it? <laughs> that we waited <laughs> yeah. a little bit of time because Vince McMahon, since we've last talked, you may have heard, uh, is out the door <laughs> in the WWE. He's no longer running the show. Unreal. And while that recent departure, certainly historic in nature, Uh, it has seemingly had no effect on WWE business. So I throw this to you, Liam. Would you call this, March of 1992, the most critical month in company history? It feels like promotion fighting for its very existence, spoiler alert, Uh, and the modern WWE under Triple H's watch certainly shows no signs of going under. Other than the steroid trial, which maybe someday we'll eventually get to in '94. This month here, March of '92, feels like the closest we ever got to the WWE, uh, WWF, WWE, whatever you want to say, ceasing to exist.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I, I was when I saw you were going to pose this question, I kind of got to thinking about like the, the the points when it felt like the pressure was most on, and even even during the 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 sickening. Lows, I guess, I was going to use the phrase dizzying heights, but that certainly wouldn't be the appropriate term of the Benoit situation in 2007. I honestly never had the sense that the company was in jeopardy. Um I, It was always this sense of, oh, yeah, this is not good. This is a black eye. But we've kind of at that, at that point, we've kind of lived through enough that we kind of would be surprised if something drastic hits. And it didn't feel like the promotion was under fire so much as look at this situation and, and everything that kind of was involved with that. This is different. This is laser-focused on the promotion, on its top star. And when you take into account the fact that the WF was not in as safe a position as it has been in the last 22 years, um, this, you're probably right. This is probably the closest. I, I, I mean, and there are some points, obviously, like 96, 97, where cash flow was a problem and money issues were probably worse than they were at this point. But yeah, I agree. This, this, this just has the, the stink of death crawling all over this month. Yeah, I believe even Phil Donahue, uh, we will be
2: getting to that show, of course, some point in the next four hours. But uh, <laughs> Phil tells Vince McMahon, oh, you know, if this keeps going on, you're not going to be able to give these tickets away, <laughs> which I'm sure <laughs> Vince was really thrilled with, but he agreed even. So we should point out, second year in a row, we're going into mania with the controversy hanging over the promotion's head. We talked yeah. about it in 1991, Gulf War exploitation. But certainly, Liam, that pales
1: in comparison to what we've got going on here with steroids and now sex scandals. Yes. And this will be the point where I do want to emphasize, and I know, Carl, you were very conscious of this, too. uh, This is going the next hour and a half or so is going to touch on some pretty dicey stuff. Um, so I know that it is kind of an accepted thing To just point this out now ahead of time If you are the kind of person If you have whatever the situation is If you don't want to hear that If it's if it's just something that you don't want to be a part of uh, Skip forward ahead 90 minutes And we'll be talking about Wrestlemania 8 And Hulk Hogan and all the, all the build up to that show And everything on screen However, for those of you who do want to stick with us for this This is going to be This is fascinating stuff um, And even though there are obviously some some pretty heavy uh, discussion points and, and topics that we're going to have com- to to talk about. The the movement of how everything kind of plays out is just absolutely captivating. It's the reason why I've been uh, excited, but just kind of interested in having this conversation with you. And I, Kyle, let's throw it over you to kick it off because as the road to WrestleMania is underway already, it's time for the nukes to start falling.
2: Yes, a bomb is dropped on the road to WrestleMania, Mr. O'Rourke. Mm-hmm. Of course, For so many of the notes, we cite Mr. Dave Meltzer and the Wrestling Observer Newsletter throughout today's show. We will be leaning heavily on him, what he wrote at the time, what he wrote later in the Observer. But we're going to start with some words from, well, me. Uh, WrestleMania season (laughs) is typically a joyous time in the World Wrestling Federation. But in 1992, a steroid scandal was rather dampening the mood. Still, as discussed in our last episode, Liam, the television was pretty hot. And live crowds were up in the wake of a change in creative direction. That change being Hogan versus flair to a mania double main event of Hogan versus justice and flair versus savage house show business was up with Hogan and Piper teaming up to take on flair and justice around the horn. And as an 11 year old kid, that's how old I was when this was all going on. I really had zero knowledge of these scandals and was quite frankly, pretty amped for WrestleMania (laughs) eight. But, as Dave Meltzer would later put it, what almost nobody realized during this time, going back to 1992, while the steroid story was simmering and about to explode, was that one person after another was attempting to contact number one titan adversary, Phil Mushnick (laughs) of the New York Post, with tales of sexual misconduct in the WWF for a story that would make the steroid issues Mushnick had been writing about seem like nothing. Mushnick would write the following, take
1: it away, Liam. The World Wrestling Federation, already reeling from allegations of persistent steroid abuse among its biggest kiddie TV stars, appears headed towards even greater scandal, he writes. According to several highly placed sources, a lawsuit will be filed soon alleging that male WWF administrative employees and executives sexually harassed and abused underage teenage boys who are engaged as ring assistants in the mid and late 1980s the suit which is expected to be filed early next month at a new york federal courthouse will also according to the sources charge the wwf with transporting minors across state lines for the purposes of oral corruption <laughs> oral corruption yeah that's not good no it doesn't sound good as well as violating child labor laws also uh, the Yeah, no. The plaintiff's tales of sexual misconduct by WWF employees, according to the sources, have been corroborated by another party who claims to have been similarly abused while an underage teen in the employ of the WWF as a ring boy, or gopher, uh, a WDF staffer speaking yesterday from the organization's headquarters in Stafford, Connecticut, said the only authorized spokesman, Steve Planamenta, whose name will be coming up again several times throughout the course of this podcast, was unavailable for comments. Unfortunately
2: for Steve Planner, about to be coming up yeah. multiple times. <laughs>
1: Uh, Mushnik continues, David Dr. D. Schultz, a former WWF star, may have provided credibility to allegations of sexual abuse within the WWF when he was quoted last month about the organization in an independent pro wrestling magazine, Pro Wrestling Torch. We're talking about some of the top executives' sexual habits, their sexual preferences, sexual abuse, and harassment. Uh, Schultz recently joined another ex-WWF, a superstar, Billy Graham, in providing detailed claims of pervasive illegal drug use within the WWF, including steroid abuse by the WWF's marquee performer, Hulk Hogan.
2: Okay, the WWF would respond to Mr. Mushnick with the following... The New York Post has published a story containing serious yet unsubstantiated, easy for me to say, charges about the World Wrestling Federation, WWF. We want to categorically state that the WWF and its parent company, Titan Sports, do not and will not tolerate illegal or improper behavior (laughs) by any of our employees at any time. We will take, oh, it gets better. We will take (laughs) responsible action regarding any legitimate claims filed through Lawful channels. Some real loaded language there. Oh, yeah. However, Titan Sports Inc. and the WWF feel no obligation to respond to charges that cannot be reasonably substantiated. Further, our attorneys have advised us to urge all news media and others to consider the credibility and the motives of any accuser before irresponsibly making public reckless charges which are not grounded in fact and which may have been made with malicious intent. And here's the kicker for you, Liam. I can't wait to hear your response to this. Titan Sports is proud to have corporate policies that are at the leading edge of any existing in the entertainment and sports industries regarding drug use, <laughs> employment practices, and employee behavior. Titan Sports at the forefront of corporate behavior. Night yeah. to
1: <laughs> That's too good. That's too good. So. Oh, man. Titan.
2: I They say there's no obligation to respond. Here. but there was a response was there not and we're going to go to the March 9th 1992 Wrestling Observer Newsletter for that response
1: yes the response is the World Wrestling Federation Vice President in charge of talent Pat Patterson and booking assistant Terry Garvin resigned Monday. Hmm, amidst a scandal that could threaten the very future of the company. Wow. Uh, Patterson, who is generally considered one of the six or seven most influential men in the pro wrestling business, along with Garvin, one of his longtime assistants, announced their resignations following allegations of sexual misconduct by two former ring attendants. Uh, An ex-front office employee and charges uh, made a few weeks back on the Wrestling Insiders radio show, which we did talk about at the end of the uh, the last episode, by former preliminary wrestler Barry Orton. Uh, The allegations of two former ring attendants, both of whom were underage at the time, and one of which is planning to file a lawsuit within the next few weeks, according to an article in this past Wednesday's New York Post, were the first stories of this nature to actually make the mainstream news. Uh, WWF owner Vince McMahon was furious about the charges, particularly those made by Orton, because he felt that because of Patterson and Garvin's gay lifestyle, they would be unable to defend themselves against the charges, even though they both claimed they were innocent of any wrongdoing. McMahon said both felt uh, that by staying with the company, it could have a severe negative impact on the company. Thus... According to McMahon, both men offered their resignations voluntarily. I, I don't think the word voluntarily, uh, but that's what Meltzer says. Meltzer writes, uh, McMahon on Tuesday denied all of the charges against both Patterson and Garvin. He said that Garvin totally refuted the charge made by Orton, and McMahon was upset at Orton and those in the media for bringing up an incident from 1978. the <laughs> so imagine how he felt recently when one came up from 1992. Yeah. Uh, Meltzer says he was also upset with charges by a former employee in regard to Patterson as ridiculous and claimed the employee, Murray Hodgkins, actually Murray Hodgson, uh, who he called a certifiable (laughs) lunatic and was fired because he couldn't do his job properly. He noted that Patterson has been in the wrestling business for 30 years and in that time hasn't had any allegations brought against him and claimed the various sources complaining both in regards to Patterson and Garvin weren't credible. Oh, yeah.
2: All right. So he says that Patterson has been in the wrestling business for 30 years and in that time hasn't had any allegations brought against him. But this stuff was kind of out there, right? Because Vince is going to constantly, when we get to the media appearances, say, "I, right, why would I ever think that this was going on? Mm. And do you – but especially with Garvin, you know, these stories were out there. So do you – I mean, that, that's bullshit, basically, is what I'm saying, right? That it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like saying, oh, but these two have just been just such model employees for me that how I never could have imagined in a million years there would be sexual misconduct from either of them.
1: That that yeah. seems shaky, right? It, it, it seems shaky that considering, as we will talk about, people were fired and people were complained about. Um, mm, yeah, seems a little strange that he would say that uh, there's no, you know these guys are model employees and you need to consider the credibility of everybody else and not the person that at this point he almost certainly has to have heard complaints about because they're making jokes about it on television for years anyway, right? Well, not not necessarily this specifically, but everyone's heard about, the Terry Garvin School of Self-Defense commentary and the Pat Patterson go-behind and stuff like that that the gorilla would talk about on TV and, you know, bad taste as that may be, but it's the the same time. It's like they're not saying that for no reason. That's a great point because for them, I mean just hearing that
2: is basically, you know, substantiating all these complaints mm. they're getting, right? It's, In some based, ways. it's like, Yeah, it's saying, well, we're aware what these guys, you know, it's not just making fun of them because they're gay, which is what Vince is trying to paint this yeah, yeah, Oh, they're being, yeah. you know, they're being uh, discriminated against because they're homosexuals. It's because, you know, the Terry Garvin School of Self-Defense, I mean, what does that imply? Yeah. Those words. Uh should be noted that Patterson, Uh, while not the actual Booker, that's always been McMahon, uh, was second in command, a position he assumed, uh, maybe bad word choice there, (laughs) uh, in 1985 after George Scott was fired. uh, J.J. Dillon winds up taking over most of Patterson's administrative duties, although, as we'll get to, Patterson was actually not gone for long, if at all. No, no, he wasn't. Uh, So back to Meltzer here. Quote, the resignations came just a few days into what will almost certainly be the most critical period ever for the WWF. There have been several allegations of steroid and other drug use, sexual harassment, and sexual abuse that will be breaking in several newspapers around the country and on
1: the ABC television show uh, 2020 over the next two weeks. And let's get this. This continues. The lawyers in the lawsuit that Mushnick referred to in his column took depositions this past week, says Meltzer, uh, from Barry Orton and superstar Billy Graham and are working on other depositions. Meltzer didn't expect this story to break uh, at least until the lawsuit was filed. But one reporter at ABC television several weeks ago noted that many people in the New York media were aware of this impending story and were waiting to see who would break it first. Now, years later, Meltzer would write, quote, while the
2: veracity of many of the claims, was dubious. In hindsight, others were not. Hmm. And it was Lee Cole that called up Mushnick in late 1991, claiming his younger brother Tom had been working as a ring boy, helping set up the rings at various WWF shows in the Northeast. Cole said his brother Tom was brought to the home one night of Terry Garvin. He claimed Garvin was looking for sexual favors from his brother, who turned him down, and was then fired from his job. It was alleged that that was the second sexual advance from garvin that cole turned down cole was 19 at the time of the second alleged advance and 16 at the time of the first although yeah. is that accurate now because i'm reading that and i'm thinking back to like heraldo and i think they said something different on heraldo
1: they may have and, and while obviously this is focused on terry garvin I should. I, 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 in the notes, I just kind of put the detail that Tom Cole later described, not just Garvin, but Pat Patterson's stuff that was going on around this time. And he would say that he was in the fifteen. This is a quote from him: "I was in the fifteen-year-old range, so whether that's fifteen, sixteen, that's a, that's a whatever." Leak. Uh, Tom Cole says, "Pat, he'd look at you when he was talking to you. He'd look right at your crotch and he'd lick his lips. Uh, he'd put his hand on your ass and squeeze your ass and stuff like that." Um, Which is certainly not the uh, the, the, kind of the picture of innocence that gets later painted about Patterson being kind of uh, roped in. He also would make comments elsewhere um, about Patterson grabbing his crotch. So, you know, again, this is this is pretty this is dicey stuff here. Yeah. And it only gets, quite frankly, more sorted uh, Mm. because
2: Lee Cole, Tom's brother, describes a homosexual ring around the company and stuff like Terry Garvin videotaping Cole while, quote, fondling his feet and masturbating. Mm. Cole said that he was grabbed by the genitals numerous times by a second person. That sounds like the passing allegation I heard separately. Mm. Yeah, and finally was fired in 1990 for turning down the advances of a third person. Mm. That person had taken Cole to his home and asked him to snort coke and have sex with him. When Cole refused... He was stranded without a ride home and ended up spending the night in a van in the driveway. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> so it sounds to me, because I know that the third person, I'm not sure if that's a confusing thing. I know from from reading uh, the Wrestle, wrestling perspective interview with Tom Cole, uh, that he, that story about the um, taking to the home, asking to snort coke and have sex with him, stranded without a ride home, ended up sleeping in a van in a driveway, is the story that he would say about Terry Garvin. So. Okay.
2: Yeah. When I when I said that third person, um, you know, and, and a lot of this is you know we're taking notes from at the time, and then stuff mm-hmm. comes out yeah. thirty years later. So okay, that that's because that's what I had thought as well that that was Terry Garvin, um, the the snorting coke and and yeah. sleeping at the driveway story, um, just really horrible horrible stuff. Yeah. Um, Lee Cole now just Ferris fair, fair here, I guess he had his own. Questionable background details on that, Liam. Yes,
1: yeah, this, so, is, this is
2: the brother of Tom.
1: Lee This Cole. is the brother of Tom. And, and as this all started, you know, Lee had gone to Tom Cole and said, Wow, can you believe all this Hulk Hogan steroid stuff that's going on in Arsenio Hall? And Tom had said to him, You think that's bad? Let me tell you what really is going on and told him the story. Lee Cole, of course, then gets in, in touch with Phil Mushnick, as we've talked about. And this is where they really try and hit this point about the credibility of the people making these allegations. Lee Cole had been convicted of a 1982 felony robbery and a 1987 misdemeanor robbery charge, uh, which he was actually on probation for during this period of time and claimed later in the year that when all of this began, the WF actually tried to get him sent away on a probation violation um, as their way of dealing with him. Wow. Wow. Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, we're going to find out uh, later what they did with Tom Cole at an Mm. unemployment hearing. Uh, Linda, Vince's wife at the time, real, you know, (laughs) just such a benevolent leader of the Small Business Administration in this country once upon a time. Yeah, but uh, of course, as Meltzer would later write, everyone on both sides of what turned out to be one of the most important chapters in company history had a pretty questionable background. Of course, if Lee Cole had been making, or the ol- had been the only one making a call like that to Mushtak, that could have been damaging enough. But as time went on, it was just the tip of the iceberg. At first, there were other names of young ring boys who came forward to back up Cole's assertions, but just as quickly, when the publicity broke, they would deny
1: those stories or disappear. Yeah, weird stuff going on. I remember during a, a, a in the early days of a figure four weekly, when it was just Alvarez's site in 2005 or six, I want to say it was 06, Meltzer was on there and they were talking about Donahue and they were talking about all of this. And I remember the, the line that Meltzer said was, most of the claims went away and a lot of the people that were making them were suddenly driving around in fancy new cars. And it's funny how that happened. Yeah. So yeah. they start coming out of the woodwork here,
2: Liam. It, it yeah, gets even uglier. David Schultz, remember him, Dr. D, from we talked about him a lot in part one of our 92 series. He produces referee Mike Clark, who told a similar story to Cole's regarding Garvin's behavior. Clark's story disappeared rather quickly. It should be noted he was on Geraldo, uh, that yeah. now that could be told. And for years, it was just assumed to be one of a dozen stories with questionable credibility as people were coming out of the woodwork at that point. However, uh, Elio Zarlenga, am I getting that name correct? Thanks, think so. Okay, uh, worked for Jack Tunney in the WWF's Canadian office. or Jack on the take Tunney, and uh, claimed <laughs> he was there when the incident happened, and it was real.
1: Yeah. So Mike Clark probably most remembered for being on Geraldo and and revealing the the, the term the cream team, which was used for the uh, referees and ring boys who would be preyed upon. Uh, yeah. Great sense of humor here. Um, he, he, he ends, as he tells his story, I mean, it's, it's it's stressed in one of the observers around this point how Tom Cole and Mike Clark didn't know each other at all, but the story that um, that Mike Clark would tell about Terry Garvin coming onto him, it's almost the exact same practice. It's the watching porn, flicking through a book, you know, doing all this kind of, you know, doing this stuff, and then, like, basically making the move of trying to blow him. Um to, 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 to put it bluntly. Um yeah. And, and yeah, so again, that's an interesting one. It's like, yep, yeah, same story, same pattern yeah. of behavior. Yeah, and just to be clear here, Mike Clark,
2: he's a referee. Mm-hmm. He's obviously, you know, not one of the more well-known referees, but what he was basically alleging was, okay, that he was fired from his job because he did not um, you know, accept Garvin's sexual advances. Yeah. So just so everyone's clear there. I think he he
1: also offered him a green card and $500 along with his job, but uh, he he turned that down. Wow. Wow. Um, So along those same lines, Tom Hankins, a
2: prelim wrestler and longtime reader of the observer uh, (laughs) wrote, wrote always nice for Dave to point that out. Uh, But uh, Hankins writes a letter talking about an incident in a bar with Patterson where he claims sexual favors were suggested. And that lands, hankins on the phil donahue show more on that momentarily and of course let's not forget barry orton barrio who had gotten this whole thing rolling by questioning whether uh with garvin now in a power position that a previous alleged sexual advancement in the amarillo territory in 1978 may have been a reason for his career in WWF never advancing so Hmm. you know orton is is you know one of the women who got the ball rolling and he's certainly not out of the picture uh at all here as a matter of fact he'll of course be on donahue as well and he actually calls into larry king yeah but patterson and garvin were not the only ones accused claims were made of strange episodes involving mel phillips this guy yeah uh this is when it gets real dicey folks so uh mel phillips who Meltzer would write quote had a propensity for fondling young boy's feet This was hardly a secret in the business since there was a joke inside about what Phillips' favorite type of vehicle was with the answer being a tow truck, which is really fucking gross. (laughs) Uh, As we're about to get into. So (sighs) it's important to know, Liam, and this I know you're going to want to get into this. Yeah. McMahon had fired Mel Phillips in 1988 due to his relationship with children appearing, quote, peculiar and unnatural. Here we are in '92, and the story breaks, and Phillips is back in charge of the ring crew.
1: I don't understand this at all. Why in the f- fuck would you bring this guy back? If you've, if, even if, you know, he professes his innocence. Even you, you have, you've clearly, if you're Vince or whoever, you've observed enough to figure out that something is i don't want to say a foot that certainly seems inappropriate in this situation but something certainly seems as as he says peculiar and unnatural um if you've identified that and you kind of think that's a problem and you get rid of him you're you're, you're strong enough in your convictions that you get rid of the guy what the fuck do you need to bring him back what is he bringing to the table that's so valuable that you need him specifically to do it
2: yeah it's not his ring announcing yeah it's not his ring announcing right because that's another thing we need to point out you know most people know who Mel Phillips is. He was you know, a ring announcer, uh,
1: but he was still on TV in the he start still... of March. Yeah. Like at the start, as, as we're watching the TV, it's like, oh, my God, Mel Phillips is there right now on TV. Yeah, so it,
2: it's one of those things that, you know, this would make it really hard for Vince to kind of to defend, oh, I didn't know what was going on with Mel Phillips. Well, you 86 the guy once, and you bring him back, and here he yeah. is. He's on your television like last week. So a second cool. accuser was Chris Loss. Uh, quote, boys are getting propositioned and played with all the time, Loss would mm-hmm. tell the San Diego Union Tribune, adding, quote, you sort of put up with it because you can make a lot of money. And we get this fucking story that David Stan, <laughs> talked about in business insider, uh, in October of 2020, I'm not, certainly we're not trying to make light of this. It's just, you read this stuff and you're just it's like, so oh bizarre. it's, it, it's so bizarre. bizarre and like hideous. And you're like, who are these people? And just Mel Phillips is just oh, he's garbage. He's yeah. He's just fucking shitty. I mean, <laughs> and this is what a transcript of an interview with loss conducted in 1992, uh, by Cole's attorney, Uh, This is what loss had to say. He said he first met Phillips in June of 89 loss had attended the taping of the wrestling challenge TV show in Niagara Falls. So that's June of 89 and he was Hmm. fired in 88. So he was brought back pretty quick. Yeah. It wasn't going long. Yeah. Uh, So, so loss is at this taping of wrestling challenge in Niagara Falls and he recognized Phillips from his role, announcing the matches and asked for an autograph. Phillips enlisted Loss's help in tracking down a graduation cap to use as a prop in the event. Mm. Shudder to think what was going on there. So, as they were talking, Loss saw a wrestler walk by and shouted out the performer's real name as opposed to his ring avatars. Is considered a smart Alec move in the wrestling world. Broke mix. Phillips Loss said, chastised him by stepping on his toe, quote, really hard. According to the transcript, when Loss later complained that his foot hurt from the stopping, Phillips replied, well, let me see it for a second. Mm. Before I knew it, Loss told Cole's attorney, he grabbed my foot and just ripped off my shoe, and he was, like, playing with my foot? Things were going through my head. Me and my friend were looking at each other in total shock, like, is this guy going to kill us or something? I mean, I'm sure that's extreme, but you hear stories about people. After several minutes, Law said he told Phillips to stop. Quote, he kept on saying in this real weird voice, you shouldn't have called Honky Tonk Man his real name. You should show them more respect. He was just rambling on like that. He's saying, are you sorry, Chris? Liam, your thoughts? and <laughs> Do you want to bring up the Wrestling Classics board post that you shared with oh, me? Oh, good Lord. I You know,
1: this... seems like a good time to do it it does this is quite the awful um scenario and setup here so uh, just the nature that you would i you know there's no words that can really be said by (laughs) sound rational people (laughs) Mm -hmm. when you hear stuff like this because it's like this is just absolutely hideous it's this, really, this, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, it makes you, uncom- I mean,
2: I, I don't get uncomfortable often, but like you read that story and you're like, that is just so fucking gross. It's a minor, I mean, it's gross if it was anybody. Like if it was, if, if Mel Phillips was fondling the feet of a adult woman saying mm. you shouldn't have called Honky Talk Man his real name, that's inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <you should. laughs> but, but this is a child. Oh, yeah. You, you shouldn't have called him Wayne. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yes. I know. Yeah. What and, and for the fuck record, is
2: this? yeah. So for the record, it was Hockey Talk Man who Chris Loss apparently, you know, called Wayne Ferris. For,
1: yeah, wait, and 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 the thing that's kind of that's even more as bad as that is the thing that is just looming in my head is like, there's no way that that's the first time he's done that because the premeditated aspect of stepping on the guy's foot to do it is like how many other people of, as, as this happened to. So you mentioned the wrestling classics message board, which was just, as I was just going through, uh, you know, just stuff, looking at this on the wrestling classics message board. I, I stumbled across a couple of posts from somebody in 2008 who went by the name of Robin and claimed that they knew Mel Phillips, believe it or not, Kyle, uh, I'll, I'll try and get through this pretty quick. I happen to know that Mel Phillips is living in Pennsylvania and has been for the last 10 years, says Robin. My ex-husband worked with him as a teenager, and Mel still visits often. My ex said that the only weird thing about him was that he liked to twist people's toes, but that he never tried anything that resembled molesting. He only took to the kids from broken homes because he felt bad for them. I have known Mel for 10 years, and yes, he dates women, and yes, he is a decent human being. If you notice, there was only one person that accused him of these allegations, which isn't true. And once he was paid off, he asked for and got a job back with the WWF. I don't think that people should really say anything about a person unless they really know the facts. I've had Mr. Phillips in my home many times, and my children, who are grown now, love Uncle Mel and consider him to be a great friend. When I say that Uncle Mel is here on the phone, they come running. Does that sound like they're afraid of him or that he molested them? And by the way, Mr. Phillips also has a wonderful job as he has a master's in music and is currently dating a wonderful woman for the last eight years. Uh, and if that wasn't enough, Robin returned and said, oh yeah, I also wanted to clarify one more thing about Mel Phillips and Tom Cole's allegations. In Mr. Cole's interview, he never mentioned any touching or sexual contact whatsoever. What he stated was that Mel had a foot fetish and he considered it sexual. I think that speaks for itself, says Robin. The fact that he was given a lot of money and then wanted to work for them again also says something. The other two people named wrestlers as their perpetrators. Uh, I have a friend that likes her feet tickled and rubbed. Her husband does this for her, as do her children. Does that make her or her children sexually abusive? I think people tend to exaggerate anything they personally do not understand. I don't understand Mel's obsession with twisting toes, but I would sit back and talk to him for hours at a time and he is a highly intelligent, extremely wealthy and wonderfully humorous. uh, Mel uh, was also in some of the Rocky movies and has led a very interesting life. The only reason he did not get married and have a family is because he was always traveling for wrestling and didn't feel it would be fair to a wife to always have to leave her. Well, enough said about Mel. But seriously, I just think that most people should not speculate about the facts unless they know them. Thanks. That's Robin.
2: Robin. And, can you please now read the first reply to Robin on the Wrestling Classics message board, or at least the one you shared with me? Hi, Mel. <laughs> yes. So.
1: Which is true. It's got come on now. I know when I write about my friends, I always point out how they're extremely wealthy and have a master's in music. Yeah. Is that true that he was in the Rocky movies? I don't know. It can't
2: be true. (laughs) What? Um, I mean, I know Rocky 5 was bad, but Jesus. (laughs) So, yeah, so Mel Phillips is a very just hideous, disgusting human being, despite what Robin would like to say. And you you want to go on to a note uh, that uh, from Tom Cole here about yeah, what declining yeah. Garvin's advances and it kind of tells, ties
1: Mel, Mel Phillips into. Yeah, this this will kind of tie things together. So Tom would detail that after we declined Garvin's advance, Garvin hinted, he kind of said it without saying it, is the way that Tom Cole described this in his interview uh, with Wrestling Perspective. He said that Tom knew Mel, and, and Garvin said that since Tom knew Mel and what Mel was all about, you know, there's kind of a chain of command of Mel hooking him up. Yeah, no. And he's, he's, he's kind of saying it like that. Not good fucking behavior from executives in, in pro wrestling here. Um, yeah. Basically, the chain of command being what? That they're going to be groomed? Like, is that? Yeah, that's that's certainly the uh, the implication there. Now, the bomb dropped in March. Just as the company's getting ready for WrestleMania, and they've just come off all this other slew of bad press, the Tom Cole story actually broke in the San Diego Union Tribune in an article by Jeff Savage uh, before Mushnik piled on, and then it got a lot more mainstream attention, obviously, because it was New York Post. Uh, should be noted that while their names were not mentioned in the story, Patterson and Garvin resigned anyway. Um, Phillips had already been suspended. Uh, for fear that his name would be attached to the story Which says a fucking hell of a lot right there that yeah. before any names have Even come out When they hear there's rumblings of a media story To do with kids, the first thing they do is Suspend Mel Phillips without his name Even being attached to it yet
2: And Tatterson um, and Garvin resign too They resign, yeah With their names not being mentioned publicly
1: oh, Yes, correct, now McMahon would say That Patterson and Garvin resigning was because Of extreme loyalty to the company But as Meltzer would write, and as we've just observed, that was a strange thing from Matt to say since the first connection anyone made with any of the names charged was when the WTF released their name saying they'd resigned. Uh, Jerry McDivitt, legend, uh, claimed that Lee Cole masqueraded as Tom in an interview with Jeff Savage and that Lee Cole had bragged that personally to him. So this is just getting more and more uh,
2: wild. So McDivitt is uh, basically saying, oh, Lee Cole just pretended to be his brother... Yeah, and you know this happened to me when really it was Lee Cole talking. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so in 2004, Meltzer writes exactly what was and what wasn't true is still uncertain. At the time, McMahon said that Patterson, as we've talked about, nor anyone uh, knew who Hankins was. Goes back to Tom Hankins. A lot of, a lot, of a lot of people involved here.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Please get your roadmaps out, folks. We'll we'll, we'll get you there. But so uh, McMahon says Patterson or anyone knows who Hankins was, didn't know how to respond to that charge. Perhaps Meltzer would write Patterson was just joking around in front of an audience at a Southern California bar when Hankins, who was small and didn't have a good physique, asked him if he could work for the company as a job guy.
1: Yeah. And Liam, what was Patterson alleged to have said to Hankins? So th- this is the deal where Hankins is in the bar. He asked for work and Patterson, because the card was loaded said that, well, there isn't any way for that to happen at the moment. And then he kind of trails off and kind of says, well, there is one way um, alluding to the obvious. And I think that at that point, he actually outright said, at least Tom Hankins would later say that Patterson outright said, well, "You can come to my room and sleep with me. But I don't know if that would be expressly said at this point in time. But that's what uh, Hankins alleged. And again, mm-hmm. it, it's actually quite worth noting that Meltzer kind of sticks to this. The idea that Patterson... As a sleazy sense of humor, this this kind of, mm-hmm. this is kind of the narrative that happens for years. But as you just mentioned, with what Tom Cole said was happening to him, maybe not so much. Who knows? Yeah, and Hankins,
2: who is on Donahue, he sort of reiterates that story in that opening segment. He's yeah. there with Orton and uh, Marie Hodgson. Okay, now to your point about Patterson and you know whether or not he got unfairly roped into this deal. Some of the charges against him do turn out to be phony, notably yeah. those by Murray Hodgson, who we're going to get into later. But this is my take here. That does not excuse this apparent own goal Patterson committed in February soccer term. Uh, <laughs> a, a rib gone awry, if you will. And it is now time for <laughs> Billy Jack Haynes to <laughs> enter the proceedings. Yes, Billy yes. Jack Haynes. Yes. For those who do not know this story, Billy Jack Haynes reportedly drove to the January 27th TV taping in Lubbock, Texas, after being told by Patterson he could get a tryout. Once there, Vince McMahon told Haynes that he had already put the show together, didn't know Haynes was coming in, and couldn't use him. The same situation took place the next day in Amarillo. As Billy Jack tells it, he asked Pat Patterson for a job while his friend Brian Adams' crush was on the speakerphone talking to Pat, and Pat offered Billy a tryout in Texas at the TV tapings. After being denied a chance to work a second time in Amarillo, Haynes exploded and was prepared to knock Vince out, only to be stopped by Hercules, his old rival. (laughs) He put him in the full Nelson and wouldn't let him do it. Uh, Anyway, I think Patterson, as the story goes, was said to be laughing kind of in the
1: background here at (laughs) Haynes. Well, is that true? I yeah, I'd heard the same thing, but I think that might be. Who knows if that's true? That might just be the comic up the, the the storytelling of, of Billy Jack. Who knows? Okay, so uh, anyway, uh, Haynes drives back home, some
2: seventeen hundred miles to Portland, still with no job, and he yeah. decides
1: to get and he decides to get revenge. Liam, he sure does. Now we have a quote here: George Zahorian went to jail for the crimes of Vince McMahon. Haynes said. Uh, Haynes recalled in 1987 when he was on a plane from Detroit to Miami and he was working while in severe pain with two broken fingers. But he said that man wouldn't let him have time off since he was working in a major program with Hercules at the time. Uh, He was using codeine and Tylenol 3 supplied by Zahorian because of the pain. The codeine made the pain unbearable. I took two on an empty stomach is the quote here. Haynes, who was also on steroids at the time, saw his heart start beating irregularly, uh, which forced the plane he was on to make an emergency landing in Charlotte, where he was then rushed to the hospital. Uh, Another quote here, they, the doctors, told me I need either shock treatment or a pacemaker, and I picked the shock treatment. My goodness. Yeah. Okay,
2: so... Billy Jack Haynes is a bit of a wild card. As you know, have you ever seen the video of him? This is more about cutting a promo on Stone Cold Steve Austin. Oh God, yeah. Do you know who sent me that? Uh, that no Please enlighten me. It's someone you and I both know. And it, <laughs> and it is the last person you would think would send me something like that. But yes, they did. So Brilliant. Uh, but here's the thing with Billy Jack and credibility, okay? It should be noted that these stories about the irregular heartbeat and the plane, because that plane landing story sounds kind of crazy, right? Mm. Like, you know, oh, okay. Oh my God, Billy Jack Haynes has an irregular heartbeat. We must make an emergency landing in Charlotte. This was actually reported at the time in the Observer back in late 87. I was randomly a couple weeks ago just going through 87 Observers. (laughs) And these items were reported. It was kind of when Billy Jack was on his way out of the company and was looking to promote... In Portland,
1: opposite Dan uh, of oh, Dan yeah. Don Owen,
4: yeah,
1: yeah. So there you go. So this is not something that's just been pulled out of thin air. This was reported at the time. Um, now, after affirming Billy Graham's story that the cocaine tests of the 80s were easily beaten by clean guys pissing into balloons. Billy Jack addressed Graham's claim that 90% of the roster was on the gas. Uh, Haynes called that generous and that it was more like 100%. And at the TV tapings he showed up at, the January ones we just talked about, the drug problem was as bad as ever, describing various wrestlers as zombies.
2: Okay, now, in all fairness, I don't know how long Billy Jack was backstage. I mean, <laughs> did, did, picturing this scene, he just walks backstage, you know, asking for McMahon, and like there's just random people just like shooting up. <laughs> and doing- Oak in front of him i mean but look I, I he's far from the first person to use the zombies term for wwf tv, TV no. in this oh, era for sure and when asked about allegations of sexual harassment haynes described an incident which happened to him quote an executive he named melzer omitted it uh wanted to get in my shorts one night as i was coming out of the shower whatever person the executive uh, stuck his finger up my ass I told him never to ever touch me again. He started
1: laughing. I never talked with him again. I want to stress right now, I'm not laughing because I find that act funny. I'm laughing at the idea of Billy Jack Haynes saying this to Dave Meltzer or to whoever it was he's reporting this to. Because (laughs) I know that what you're saying right now, the next line, in fact, say the next line. Okay, (laughs) why the fuck, if you're
2: Pat Patterson, would you do this to Haynes at this time? The rib of... Hey, come to Amarillo. We'll give you work when he had no intention of giving him work. Mm. Um, so why would you do this at the time? The rib, not the finger and the ass, because we can't confirm <laughs> that, that it was Patterson. Um, but you, you would have to assume it was either Patterson or Garvin. You would think so. and Knowing what the consequences might be here. I mean, this rib is just unbelievable. It's like, it, it's not like the bad press isn't already out there. And, if you just think it's funny, oh yeah, I'm gonna, you know, invite old stupid Billy Jack Haynes to our TV tapings. He's gonna drive here, and then we're gonna be like, yeah, no, no job for you, Billy. I mean, what do you think he's gonna do? <laughs> he's got stories and he's gonna tell him, and he's gonna pile on.
1: That's what. That's what's amazing about this. That it's, it's hubris to an almost comically delusional degree to think that, because again, th- like you say, this is after Billy Graham's been speaking out for a while. Schultz has been talking for a while. This is, this is, you know, we talked about it before when Hogan lies on Arsenio in 91, there are people chipping away at, at him lying and to do again, it must it's just probably thinking he wouldn't do anything about it. You know, it's that it's, just, it's just delusional to such a ridiculous degree now I will say there's two things I want to point out here. Number one, while again, I want to stress when I was laughing about the finger up the ass, the reason I'm laughing is because I, I almost can't believe that that story is true. Because wasn't Billy Jack Haynes like notoriously one of the baddest motherfuckers like around? Like if there's anyone that you would, you know, like the behavior of, of what we've been talking about is like the people they can take advantage of. Right. The kids, yes. the, the rest, the ring boys, the people who are below them. I cannot imagine someone being brazen enough to do something like that to fucking Billy Jack Haynes harder than a coffin nail and mm-hmm. and, and thinking they could get away with it. And when it comes to this. The, the the rib of of yeah come come get some work there's no work I can I I actually can completely believe that this is a rib by that he thought this will be funny and then he'll go away and as it turned out he did not go away see I think that's a like I
2: said own goal Billy Jack totally. Haynes e- even at this point though had a reputation uh, Billy oh, yeah. Jack I mean he would talk so. First of all, I mean, it's it's a pretty dick move to do this to anybody. Oh, of course. Right. Like, I mean, somebody driving 1,700 miles thinking they're going to get a job. Okay. You know, Billy Jack's fresh off the black blood run in WCW, which shouldn't exactly pack him in. And, you know, the guy's looking for work. We don't know what he's doing. He's probably struggling financially. Mm -hmm. So it's just an asshole move in general. So it'd be terrible to do to anybody, but to choose to do, and I mean, it's not like he singled them out. Billy Jack was apparently... Like we said, you know, in hanging out with Brian Adams and he's yelling in the background. Hey, can I get a job too? And Patterson's like, yeah. So, um, but if Billy Jack is just not a guy that you should do. You should know better. He's going to talk. He, if it was anybody, they'd talk at this point, because if it's anyone who's been in the WWF locker room for any period of time in that late eighties period, they've got so much to talk about and pile on with these stories. Oh, Have yeah. They're,
1: it's not, they're I, not
2: shy of material. I, I mean, let's say the you know, it's not somebody who's gonna tell a finger in the ass story or whatever. It's somebody who probably is like, oh yeah, I know Hulk Hogan did steroids. hmm Or yeah. like I shot Hulk Hogan up with steroids once. There's just
1: it just it's so stupid that Patterson. Why did that. why would you make enemies at a time like this when you're already under the gun? Now, granted, another part of this, I hate to say this, but part of it is the fact that again, like I we, uh, you mentioned the Steve Austin video, and there's been plenty of stuff with Billy Jack Haynes in, in the years following, where some people probably just thought no one's going to take the guy seriously. Because when you see some of the stuff that you've seen in later years from him, you think the same thing. Which actually reminds me, I've never told anybody this, but shortly after the Pillman book was released, I was approached to write the Billy Jack Haynes biography. Oh, you're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding at all. You never told me this. I've never told anybody this. <laughs> I just remembered it looking at this right now. I was like, oh my God, I just remembered Billy, of course. And I, I, I did not respond, I don't think. I, I think it, I, I said, you know what? I really don't know about this. And I, but I don't want to be rude because I appreciate the, 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 uh, the approach, but I just, I can't, I don't know. I don't know right. about that one. It's going to put
2: you in an uncomfortable position as an author to hmm. discern truth from fiction. And yeah. if, the subject you're profiling is, you know, it d- is determined. Oh, this is true. This is true. And you you don't really believe him as the author. That's obviously a problem. Yeah, in the problem. I mean, I, I'm no author. I mean, that's just kind of my two cents, I guess. Oh, so yeah. No, you're right. Uh, I'm no author, but I do watch a lot of television, Liam. And now <laughs> we get to the famous TV of oh, yeah. the scandals. And we are going to start with Larry King Live, that bastion of American journalism. So McMahon and Bruno Sammartino were guests on Larry King Live. And at the time, this was a rare media appearance by Vince. I think people mm-hmm. don't realize that. Back in, this, in the day, Vince was not out at the forefront unless if it was a total softball situation. Yeah. So King, who had done no research on the story, imagine that. Uh, this is a man who once had Jerry Seinfeld on his show and said, Oh, did they cancel you, by the way? <laughs> Which caused one of the most incredulous reactions from Jerry Seinfeld you've ever seen. It. People have never seen that. They need to look that up. I Jerry's have like, seen that before. Yeah, Jerry's like, "Jerry, we were the number one show on TV. You think they canceled <laughs> us?" And Larry's like, "Oh." Anyway, uh, Larry basically sat back and allowed Vince to tell lie after lie. Uh, Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller were both incredulous at this show, as they should have been. Your thoughts? <sighs> On McMahon's I, performance on Larry King, I know we're going to get into the specific lies later on.
4: Oh
1: the yeah, moment. so I I had never seen Larry King live from start to finish until I prepped for this. I'd seen a clip that was online years ago, but it was only like the first segment. And in that first segment alone, he's just the most absolutely contemptible. I mean, what a, if you know what's going on? What That's a, Vince. I mean, Larry Vince. King is
2: Larry King is pretty yeah. contemptible too. But I mean, you're talking about Vince, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, Vince is contemptible just, if, when you know the story, I, the approach he takes, and not just the approach he takes of of ignorance, and, and but the fucking arrogance of the guy yes. when Bruno tries to say stuff, and for him to just, just several times, just bold lie about what he knows, what's happened, who is in his company, who isn't, thinking, you know, just trying to score, it's like, you see the way he thinks when you watch this. This is a point-scoring exercise, and he thinks that if he scores more points, he wins. Not realizing that by trying to make this a point-scoring game, he is making himself look to anybody who really knows the story. Who, by the way, were the ones driving the media stories. You know, it's like it's not like some, some random fucking yokel in the local paper You know, stumbles upon an interview with a guy who, who leaks one of this the people who are are reporting and are talking to the reporters are the people that know what's going on. And Vince is just there. It's almost like you are asking for to be just absolutely hammered, thinking that if you just get through this and make Bruno look bad by making him look uninformed or just talking the way you're talking, where you think that it sounds good, it's so disgusting. And I I did like, there's a reaction that you caught, which is brilliant.
2: Yeah. So, look, I'd just like to reiterate what you just said. Vince is rather hateable on this show in addition to being untruthful now the reaction i noted was just quite frankly incredible barry orton calls in in the latter part of the show and quite frankly is unfocused and i don't think did a very good job
1: no he did he he, he, yeah i was thinking the same thing this is i'm not sure if i'd seen this part before at least not seen it in full but when he calls in He's so all over the place that you almost, as a, as, as a viewer, you're like, Will you just I, stop cutting the promo and just focus on what we're talking about now? Yeah. And we're going to, th- there's a lot of that going on that
2: we'll get to, especially uh, when we hit Donahue. But Orton, at one point, you talk about being all over the place, he brings up unions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which has always been an issue in wrestling, right? Oh, why aren't these wrestlers unionized? Well, as soon as Orton says the word unions, McMahon. eyes roll into the back of his head, it's almost (laughs) Undertaker-like. Right? Like, I mean, you can almost tell who taught the Undertaker the eye roll in the back. I mean, he was just like, it was just like, oh, Union. You know, like, you know. Here we uh, fucking go. Yeah, oh, you're gonna bring up unions now? But yeah, you know, as far as McMahon's performance on the show, he's still in that wrestling bubble, or at least that's the way he's operating, where it's almost like I'm going to cut my promos. And when this is all over, I'm going to walk backstage. And, you know, it's like Heyman made fun. What was that? Pro- was it the late 2001 promo where they actually let Heyman just go yeah. off, right? To Vince's like, a new one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right before um, Survivor Series. Yeah. And, you know, Heyman talked about it. It's like, oh, you just walked back and Patterson and Briscoe are just clapping for you, going. <laughs> Like it felt like that's what Vince was doing on Larry King. Like he was just he gonna he was gonna be Vince. He was gonna walk off set, and his stooges were just gonna like tell him how great he did and how yeah. he's he beat Bruno on points. Yeah, uh, he certainly did not uh, score any points in the honesty department though, Liam. No. So let's let let's hit these here. <laughs> what the things that McMahon actually had the balls to say on Larry King. He claims that he had never heard of any rumors, of any sexual misconduct until they broke in the newspapers. Uh. However, However, as mentioned earlier, Phillips had been fired four years earlier by McMahon and then brought back. When San Martino brought Phillips up on the show, McMahon responded that Mel Phillips was never an employee of Titan Sports, which is technically true. Remember, they only have independent contractors, and he'd only worked as an Quote, occasional labor but mm. of course McMahon uh, when things start really going bad for him uh, after the show he does concede a few days later that Mel had actually worked as an independent contractor with a company almost every day
1: yeah yeah, not like a guy who just like come around once every two years to paint his house you know <laughs> yeah it,
2: it's like he's painting the house every day yeah so, yeah. <laughs> so obviously the, the idea that Vince had never heard rumors of sexual misconduct we talked about this earlier it's laughable that Vince would could say, oh, I news to me, that's a lie. Okay, Sam Martino brings up Murray Hodgson. This is the second lie. The WBF announcer, Murray Hodgson. McMahon made Sam Martino look bad by saying that Hodgson had never worked for the WB, WBF, even though he was the announcer on the WBF's home video. Unreal, unreal. So, yes, to be clear, Murray Hodgson, there is clearly videotape of him working for the company including on a, a wbf tape which i'm sure very few people watched but it, it's out there <laughs> and i didn't know this until i was breaking down the the notes for this show he also was doing event center type stuff on the wbf side there's yeah. footage of there's footage of him talking about like a six-man tag like involving the legion of doom and the nasty boys or something like that i i I apologize if i got the wrestlers wrong it's immaterial to this discussion but so he he worked actually both for the wwf and wbf
1: yeah so the the implication that you know what are you saying that for he's never worked. it's like this is something that anybody can go and prove (laughs) is not true but to vince the only thing that matters is this snapshot of 30 minutes when he's on television thinking that the general public who sees this is only going to look at this 30 minutes Mm-hmm. And, of course, Larry King is of no use uh, whatsoever. I mean, yeah, you,
2: you, <laughs> you, you talk about somebody who didn't know who Murray Hodgson was. Uh, there you go. McMahon, here's a third lie, uh, claimed uh, – by the way, we're going to obviously be talking about Murray Hodgson in great detail when we get to the Don Hugh show. Yeah. But uh, McMahon claimed Hogan had never denied using steroids on Arsenio Hall and claimed nobody in the company was
1: on steroids. Just an absolutely unbelievable lie. <laughs> And by the way, Sid failed the drug test like days after this.
2: Oh, wait, oh okay, it was days after this. So okay, yeah. I think but, so. Okay, the company had largely cleaned up to by this point. To be fair, but the idea that no one was on steroids in March of ninety two is just a whatsoever. Laugh.
1: Nobody's on steroids whatsoever. Yeah. And Hogan. Okay, they
2: keep they'll reiterate this. Oh so Hogan, he never denied using steroids. He he, he said he used steroids, but, but like. It's a lie, what he said. He claimed yeah. he only used them three times for therapeutic use, okay? Uh, which Billy Graham, if you were to listen to him, he used Hogan used them every day for a year. Now, <laughs> the truth is somewhere in between, we know. But, uh, you know, he clearly used them more than three times. Lie number four from Vince on Larry King. He also claimed not to know about Tom Cole, claiming the media was keeping Cole away from him. When in fact, Meltzer writes, at that very moment, WWF was working on a settlement with Cole.
1: Yeah, Cole would later describe this as a blatant lie. (laughs) 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 A blatant lie. He would claim that him and Jeremy Different were actually negotiating the entire week before this show took place. Um, As a final thing, talking about Larry King show, I'm going to actually take the time right now to play a soundbite, which obviously we're talking about stuff from '92. But for those of you who love the fact that uh, in 2022 uh, there were certain ironies, here is the uh, response of Vincent Mann responding to a female caller talking about the prominence of sexual harassment in the workplace.
3: My question and statement is for Mr. McMahon. Um, First off, I would like to say that sexual harassment is very much alive in America and an industry as large as his, it's not impossible that something like this could happen.
5: Very true. What I want very to
3: know true. is how come he is so
4: defensive and not willing to accept that this possibility could exist, and, and what is he going to do to prevent this from happening in the future?
5: Fair question. Very, very fair question. Thank you very much for asking that question. To me, this is the most reprehensible type of behavior uh, in any organization.
2: Okay. Wow. I mean, there you go. I uh, Vince McMahon and so Tom Cole, he does settle with Titan for yeah, it's is it $55,000? Is that the number we've come to because it was reported at first like 60 to 70?
1: Yeah, I saw the same numbers kind of dancing around. Okay, um, regard- okay, so anyway, it's you know
2: between 55 and 70,000 uh, in cash for two years back pay and. Cole was given a multi-year contract to return to his former job as a ring boy. That's crazy that he would return uh, to that job. And, you know, I feel that's just giving meat on the bone for Titan. But anyway, Cole was given the impression in time that he could be a ring announcer. Yeah. So I think that
1: he told them that that was like his dream was to be what Mel Phillips was, I guess, in in, in the ring announcer role. Funnily enough, Kyle, as this would play out about a year later, year and a half later – Cole obviously does go back to the company, as we say here, leaves. There's some problems. Uh, at Cole's unemployment hearing, he noted that a letter uh, was produced that revealed that they actually only expected him to be in the company for a year. Uh, with the idea being that obviously, even though they signed him to a multi-year deal, they actually had there was an internal letter that he had produced or that Linda had produced that actually revealed that he actually they were only going to have him for an extra year, meaning while this is going on and we can get whatever we want out of him. Yeah. So
2: there you go. And the settlement occurs just before McMahon was set to appear on the Phil Donahue show. And what an infamous show this is, as we are introduced to Mr. Marie Hodgson. A
1: fascinating so, character.
2: Yes. So Hodgson briefly worked as an announcer for the WBF before being fired, as we talked about. He claimed Patterson had made a remark to him saying, what do you taste like around the time he was fired? This was a line Hodgson would repeat ad nauseum in almost every TV appearance he would make, though actually not on Donnie. He did not Mm. use that quote. I think every other uh, media appearance he did. Very practiced. Yes, it was very practiced, very rehearsed. Some would Mm. say it was a scripted promo. And as it turns out, Hodgson was a well-spoken con man. But we did not know that yet in 1992, at least in the early part of 1992. And on the Phil Donahue show, Liam, Murray Hodgson slams Vince McMahon in a face-to-face situation uh, to open that program. Uh, McMahon apparently would later concede it was quite the promo, (laughs) which is incredible that he would use those terms. But uh, I was a hell of a pro pal by Murray on me. <laughs> uh, Meltzer would write it left Vince with no comeback, an amazing irony considering what happened with San Martino just days earlier on the Larry King show
5: you did a horrible job that's the only reason why you were fired that's it maybe I should point out first and foremost that might be your inability to uh, pick good talent it could you be you had a national Granted. talent search Vince it Could be. you advertised in Billboard magazine and across many different media sources searching for one man that could be the new face and voice of the World Wrestling Federation you flew me in back and forth four and five different times from Detroit and you chose over the course of one year of negotiations that I would be the man for that job I didn't sleep with your vice president, two weeks later, I'm fired. I also want to point out one very important fact. From your office came a letter to my landlord to verify my employment. From that letter, I must bring this point up. It says, Murray Hodson has a very secure job with Titan Sports and is a positive and productive employee. From your office, just because I don't sleep with your vice president, that qualifies to blow me out of a two-year deal? I don't buy it.
1: this is an unbelievable speech from Hudson. It's so good. He just, Vince tries it into, at one point and he just steamrolls and says, I must make this point. And so it just hits his fucking promo. And it's just, it, it what's it brilliant about it is because Vince's big thing before this is, you know, you were fired because you were just not good at the job. You couldn't, you couldn't, you were not, you couldn't make the transition from radio to television. And then just absolutely cuts a promo that rips Vince to shreds with not a ounce of like, you know, a lack of poise he just has what he, he just he fucking nails it right on the money gets a fucking ovation from the live <laughs> audience which just makes vince look about this fucking small yes. oh it's beautiful so even if he's full of shit it's like yeah you take that you think that you're good at being a, a full of shit vince you are a low level carny in that world
2: oh yeah this was two carnies going at it and First of all, Larry King, uh, the entire episode is on YouTube. People can check that out if they want to mm-hmm. follow along with us. The entire Phil Donahue episode that we're talking about is also on YouTube. So that show opens. Uh, you've got Donahue at a table, Vince McMahon on one side, Murray Hodgson on the other, uh, next to Orton and Tom Hankins. Is there a lawyer there too? Uh, I don't believe so. Okay, never mind. Okay, I'm sorry. For some reason, I... Um you know what it was I think I didn't know who Hankins was when I first watched it ah. I just like assumed it was like Orton's like lawyer okay anyway but it's it's you know three, it's three against one on the uh, in this opening segment and I guess we should bring this up now This audience was just like laughing at this whole situation oh, at it's, the start. it's a circus yeah it's a total circus you, you you're just almost like what you want us to do like a serious story about pro wrestling yeah but Donahue does a pretty good job, though I would say, at getting oh, the audience to pay attention. Hey, this is this company, you know, is worth a lot of money. These are very serious allegations involving children. And you talk about Hodgson and the accusation Vince makes that Hodgson was no good at his job. Meltzer writes, Hodgson made that statement look ridiculous within thirty seconds as he dis- <laughs> as he dismantled McMahon with the poise of a twenty-year television veteran that even McMahon couldn't match. Oh, this amazing. was interesting when McMahon claimed Hodgson's lawyers wanted one hundred and sixty thousand dollars this morning mm. or he'd go on the air. It was clearly last dis- desperation when Hodgson denied it and said that ever since he made his charge, McMahon's been trying to buy him out. It resulted in a near standing ovation, like uh, you said. Now. Getting back to Murray Hodgson's untruthfulness. That is actually true, right? what Vince said that because Hodgson does later ask for his job back and that's when Meltzer starts smelling bullshit with him yeah. but is that true that Hodgson tried asking for the $160,000 or he was going to go on Dodio I you know I
1: believe it is Vince apparently it is claimed that Vince did have the letter from the attorney in his pocket that he was going to pull out on Donahue. He had, he had, as we'll get to, a few uh, Perry Mason moments of, aha, I caught you out here that he was planning to do. This was one of them. And when, he, as soon as he makes the insinuation that uh, yeah, basically, I mean, in reality, that letter could have just been a settlement thing of like i'll go away for this much money because i'm sure they were paying people Oh, they were paying people off by then they'd already re signed tom cole so he would have been like as much it it, it depends how you want to frame it is it framed as if you give me this money i'll settle and i'll go away or is it you know hey if you're giving this money right now i'm going to go on there and tell the world or whatever but it depends how you want to frame it It depends on the perspective knowing the situation and how it plays out i wouldn't be surprised if this was absolutely dead true um and vince planned on pulling out but murray didn't let him
3: Moe didn't, no, didn't even didn't.
1: let him. He just as soon as he says it, you can see like he's just shutting it down. No way.
2: It's funny too because Hodgson in later media appearances was not as sharp. Like no. he clearly like this was his moment. He figured and he just uh, again he was exposed. And just so everyone's clear here, this is Meltzer writing. It is be- years later. It is believed Hodgson saw Patterson and Kurt Henning horsing around doing some sort of joke about Patterson. Again, there's Dave kind of talking about Patterson in that way. And after being fired, Hodgson came up with this idea for a lawsuit. It was not the first time Hodgson sued an employer after termination. This was kind of a thing. Do you know what Murray Hodgson ended up doing in life? Uh, I do not, actually. I think he worked at a gay bar. Really? Per day, yeah, at David per like David Bixen's fan on between the sheets. I'm positive. I'm, I'm almost positive that uh, Bix mentioned that like he managed it or something like that. I, okay. People could check. It was between, that was like a shocking thing. I didn't have that in the notes, but um, <laughs> I, it was a clip. As I was watching some of these other clips from the time period, it came up, and I was like, oh yeah, I remember this. Let me and now I, I I'm almost positive that it was a gay bar that well. Somehow, Murray Hodgson thats a tremendous irony, given you know what he's trying, the the card he's
1: trying to play here in 1992. Well, this is the thing, and this is—we will get to this. There's not really a place for this to sit, so you know I'll add it in now. But like, at at one point during this exchange with McMahon and uh, and Hudson, Vince, in his absolute, uh, you know, I am completely um, guiltless face and tone of voice says that he has looked into it that he has hired a, a an independent group to investigate these charges and they say okay who are they it's fairfax group limited you know very very this is it. as it turns out fairfax in <laughs> fairfax group limited is a private investigator firm that Vince hired to get dirt on everybody else and <sighs> and as it would turn out going into this episode We'll come back to this fella, but there is a question from the audience near the end of the show, a young man wearing a Lex Luger t-shirt. We'll be talking about him in a little bit and maybe not actually pretty soon. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, if if you couldn't tell from watching it, I'll confirm it. He was a plant. One of the the things that he was told to say, if he could get it on the air was that Murray Hodgson was actually a homosexual. Trying as if in somehow that change, if this, as if, you yeah, know, if it, oh, if, it, I mean, wow. if this charge was real, that would make really no difference. But at one point shortly after this, Roddy Piper did a radio appearance and they, they thought, Oh yeah, he's gay. He's a closet homosexual. So we've got the goods on him. Th- that was their mentality. It's not me saying that. Obviously the point is, Piper did a radio interview shortly after this aired where he starts to talk about Murray Hudson. And Piper says, but I'll tell you something about that guy that people don't know. He's gay. And don't you think that changes the entire story now that you have that bit of information? When in reality, the answer is, well, no, <laughs> not really. <laughs> but I know that that's the way they're trying to think of it. Like, oh, well, maybe it was just a pass. Like, yeah. it's, like but it's you know, but that was what they were trying to get to anyway. Is that the same radio appearance where
2: Piper just gives like the absolute stupidest answer about steroids because we've got that in the notes coming up yeah yep, sac- okay I, I
1: do believe it's the same interview yeah
2: okay awesome so okay so murray hodgson is full of bullshit but he cuts the probe of a lifetime on vince and makes vince look real bad um i want to note this I, I thought this was i've got the uh march 23rd 92 observer open uh, in front of me, uh, for a few extra notes we'll be adding here, just because we didn't want to make our actual notes so long, but <laughs> I-, I like how Dave wrote this. Showtime came, McMahon threw the first pitch, the old change-up. Instead of indignance at the charges, it was a new strategy, remorse, understanding, trying just to learn clearly going on the offensive against those who were making allegations about his company and Larry King, while it may have been personally satisfying to those who led him to believe he trounced Bruno, was from a corporate standpoint a bad decision. It only heeded the issue. That plays to what you said earlier, Liam. Yep. So to defuse the issue, Meltzer writes, there was only one way to go. McMahon was going to have to do a job on television. <laughs> back and take the lumps and possibly wind up as a baby face at the end because yep. the intensity of some of the guests would be such that it could turn into overkill yep. and it almost kind of does. Yes, I agree. Uh, and that Meltzer would say from a television and excitement standpoint, the high point of the show was in the opening segment, McMahon going one-on-one with Hodgson. <laughs> Meltzer, this is great. My feeling in retrospect is that there were two people McMahon personally wasn't going to lay down for Hodgson and Graham. I don't know if Hodgson was honest or not. Meltzer writes, but he either blitzed McMahon with a well-prepared, truthful offensive, or simply out McMahon McMahon. <laughs> um, now we go to the second part of the show, which takes up the most part of it. Yeah, and this was a great Dave Meltzer line from 2004, as the rest of the don as for the rest of the Donahue show, it saw a quote aggressive Donahue and a mentally beaten down McMahon. Yeah. Alo- along with guests including Hodgson, Hankins, Orton, Graham, San Martino, John Arezzi, and of course, Dave Meltzer himself. Quote, this highly rated national broadcast would make wrestling appear to be the sleaziest business in the world. What do you mean be- appear? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before the show started, and a lot of people know this story, the producers had decided to have Sam Martino, since he was the local wrestling legend, and McMahon in the center. San Martino, though, was still seething mad from the King show, furious that he felt McMahon had lied uh, to make it seem like Hodgson and Phillips didn't work for him and made San Martino look ill-informed with the process. On King, San Martino was in a studio in Pittsburgh while King was with McMahon. This time, they would be face-to-face, same room. San Martino said that if McMahon lied again, he didn't know if he could help himself from taking a swing at him after what had happened days earlier. So Dave Meltzer, yes, Dave Meltzer, ends up being moved next to McMahon. Yeah. During one commercial break, this is fascinating, McMahon whispered to Meltzer saying he couldn't wait for it to end and it was the worst hour of his life. He also apparently <laughs> made a shocking admission about the steroid testing. I So Meltzer wrote that. about. He made a shocking admission about the steroid. He wrote that in 2004. And I was like, well, what was that? And then I go back to 92, and Meltzer said, that during a commercial break, McMahon admitted to Meltzer that the steroid test could be beaten. <laughs>
1: so, and I wonder, I w- you know what, I wonder if the test did, from Sid, or something, I wonder if there was a failure between the two shows, and because that was going to break, he was about to be made to look a complete twat for lying on Larry King. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, that, yeah. how funny is it, though, that
2: Dave Meltzer is very much like the like the least adversarial person, Vince McMahon, on this panel. For
1: sure, for sure. I mean, I mean, first of all, what a great move by Dave Meltzer, Getting front and center next to Vince for television. Good work, Dave. Get your, get yourself on the spotlight, son. Way to go. Other than that, I mean, I I agree in the sense that like he's really <laughs> the voice of reason. This really does become everybody hammering the story because they're so mad that it's happening. And again, pissed at Vince for what he's done on Larry King. Meltzer's very rational. And and I think later, there were people in The Observer who actually write in and complain about the fact that Dave didn't jump on him as well.
2: Yeah, because, I mean, everyone else is just throwing bombs. They're just lobbing grenades. And and some of it, it turns out, was untrue. I mean, Mm. no matter what you think about Vince Look, Vince McMahon is not a great human being. I don't think anyone's going to dispute that. But there were falsehoods in this story from Murray Hodgson and Billy Graham uh, as, as we'll touch on, I liked this little tidbit, too, that Dave wrote at the time. About 10 minutes before showtime, Donahue came into the green room, waiting room for guests. And all the guests present were in one room. The tension was incredible in the room when McMahon walked in. I... Oh. I don't know if I've ever been in a room, wrote Dave, where an aura of mutual hatred so filled the air. I believe (laughs) I was the only one who even acknowledged McMahon, and I don't think he made eye contact with anyone else in the room, nor vice versa.
1: Never before has Vince wanted so badly to cuddle up to Dave Meltzer. Yeah, so... All right. Do you want to talk about this Tom Cole thing and how he was brought? He was at,
2: after he settles, he's brought to the Donahue tapings. Why don't you take this
1: part? Yeah. So so this for that again, the, the other we mentioned, the one Perry Mason esque moment that, that Vince had planned with the letter for Murray Hodson. The other one was that Tom Cole, who had been um, again, the settlement had been made. He was back in the fold. He was brought to the Donahue tapings and sat next to Miss Elizabeth and Linda McMahon, and that's one of those things too, where you look at that and you're like, "Oh, we're going to sit you next to the television starlet. You'll get to, you'll get to be next to Liz, you know." Um, they, I think they sent him like a bunch of money to go and shop for clothes and stuff like that as well, real dazzle him, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Perhaps for a Perry Mason final scene where his story would come up, since all of this pretty much started with either Hogan's lie or the Tom Cole accusation, and he'd shockingly be there. And back McMahon and say that no one's telling the truth but Vince. Um, His name never came up before the show, partially because Barry Orton thought that something was fishy. He tried to get a hold of Cole in the days before this show and didn't hear back from him. Um, Before this, obviously, he befriended Cole. And the story goes that Orton went up to Dave at one point and said, you know, I've not heard about Tom. I've not heard an update from him in a good few days I think it's best that we don't bring his name up. Even though so much of when Donahue is talking about the problems in the company, a lot of it is that stuff about you know the, the underage kids and what was going on with with you know, those allegations. Tom Cole's name never being brought up seems bizarre. Even I, I was expecting at one point, knowing this, Vince himself would try and plant the name in there so that someone could respond to allow it to happen. Yeah. Okay. I've got to ask a question here, and maybe it's a stupid question. But if Tom Cole
2: is in the audience sitting with Miss Elizabeth and Linda McMahon, can't mm-hmm. everyone
1: see that? They don't on panel? No, no one knew what he looked like. That's right. Meltzer said no one knew what That's he looked like. They, right. they, would, they wouldn't have known him if he was sat there in the front row.
0: That's
2: right. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so okay so yeah so basically the the pl- the Perry Mason final scene that the yeah. reference was that Tom Cole's name would get brought up and Tom Cole would shoot up out of the audience and say no I am Tom Cole and Vince McMahon is an honest guy what a freaking pro wrestling storyline that is oh and I, it's and it's not the only one <laughs> that
1: Vince had planned
2: no, no so they're oh. <laughs> As it turns out, Vince wanted a lot of plants in the audience, which is absolutely incredible. But let's talk about
1: this one guy who is a plant uh, that made television. And as far as I know, did you research this guy after I Uh, I mentioned not to? Oh, I did not research him at all. I did rewatch
2: his comment.
1: Okay, brilliant. So, and for those who have not seen it, his comments near the end of the show, after people have just been hammering Vince... This kid, who's like 15 years old at this time, in a Lex Luger t-shirt of all things, gets up and says, with the exception of, I don't really understand what's going on here, because with the exception of Dave Meltzer, I think everybody here is lying. No one's being fair to Vince McMahon. Vince is just trying to do the right thing. He says, Barry O, Barry o or Barry Orton, Mr. Orton, you've been in jail, which it was true. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think it was vehicular homicide or something yes, inadvertent yes. like that, wasn't it? Um, you know, Bruno San Martino, your son was fired from the WF under very suspicious circumstances. Oh, and he- Bruno gets real pissed. <laughs> Bruno got real fucking pissed. He even called him Sonny, I believe. That's how <laughs> yes. many he was. Yes. Yo, know, c- you know, come back when you grow up Sonny. Maybe you'll understand it. So this, this kid, this plant, very obvious plant, gets shut down here. And it is what it is. Two months later, this kid calls John Arezzi and says, OK, John, I need to talk to you. I've got something I've got to say. And oh, no. John Arezzi puts him in touch with Lee Cole. He tells Lee Cole, this kid, that a year... Uh, let's have a look. 14 months before this, January 1991, this kid, the plant in the crowd from Donahue, was 13 years old and attended a WWF house show at the Nassau Coliseum, January 1991, He was 13 years old. I really don't like where this is going. And you're not going to. And he attended with his Boy Scout troop. I really don't
2: like where this is going.
1: One of the members of the Boy Scout troop had won a competition that would allow them to go backstage and meet Texas Tornado and Tugboat as part of the competition victory. God, what do losers get?
2: (laughs) I I shouldn't make that joke. That's that's bad, because I have a horrible feeling where this is going.
1: Yeah, so they go backstage, they meet the wrestlers, that's cool, and this kid, from Donahue, the plant, asks Texas Tornado, Mr. Kerry Von Erich, hey, is it possible that I can meet my favourite wrestler, Bret Hart, who was on the show? And Kerry Von Erich, being the level-headed human being that he was, said, well, that sounds like something you'll need to talk to upper management about, you should talk to Mel Phillips. So Kerry Von Erich sends this kid to Mel Phillips who asks if he can... And He didn't even know who it was but he tells him, it's that guy there, go and talk to him. So this 13-year-old kid goes to Mel Phillips and the kid alleges to Lee Cole that he said to Mel, I would like to meet Bret Hart is that possible? And Mel said "Well, what's it worth to you? And this 13-year-old kid said, well I don't have any money, I'm the kid and Mel apparently allegedly said, well what else? You know, I'm not just talking about money. Maybe we could talk about something else. And one thing leads to another. And this kid alleges that Mel Phillips took him to his car in the car park and blew him. That's a 13-year-old that he's doing this to. So obviously is, this is this is, this is bad. <laughs> is
2: bad. Okay. Is that the story that Billy Graham then references on Donahue?
1: It may be. I'm not sure because that may have been earlier. That may have been years before. Okay. This was '91. Okay. So I started '91. Okay. So the day after this happens, the 13-year-old kid calls the WWF and says, "Hey, um, I'm just letting you know this, but this happened last night, and apparently did not go." Later, he would tell people he didn't tell the police because he thought that because he himself was gay, that it would not be. You know, he would not have a good argument, which is a real shame. That's the way people thought back then, but it's it's yeah. that's what he says. That's what he claims. And the kid said that he told the WWF the day after it happened, this happened with Mel Phillips, I'm letting you know um, that this happened. And they said, oh, great, thanks for telling us, we'll uh, we'll let people know about that. And nothing happened for a year until these allegations with Tom Cole came up, and this kid called back up and said, hey, I told you about this. Um, Is there someone that I can talk to because, you know, I want to make my story known? Well, all of a sudden, Vince McMahon was very interested in talking to this young man and told him since he was based in New York, meet me at the Donahue show. Come to the Donahue show. Holy shit. He get to, so at one point Vince is hanging around with his crew and for 20 minutes he, he disappears. And as it turns out, this kid says this happens to be the same 20 minutes when he, put, he, he calls the young kid in the Lex Luger t-shirt into his limo and they have a conversation. And Vince says, you know, there's a lot of allegations going on right now and we need to get the liars out of the way so that we can deal with the real issues. So if you do me a favor today, I will do you the favor of giving you a job and I will listen to what you have to say and we will work to fix this. Now at this point, Mel Phillips is gone already. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this is the deal Vince makes and Vince placed him in the crowd because he didn't have that many plants. In fact, I'm not sure if he had any plants, but he got him in. And got him in a good position and told him, if you get the chance, say this. And the three things he gave him was Barry Orton's been in jail. Bruno's son was on steroids and Murray Hodson was gay. And he didn't get the Murray Hodgson was gay one out, but he got to say the other two. When the show is finished, and Vince obviously is not fucking happy with the way that show went. No. The kid goes up to him and says, hey, uh, did I do a good job? And Vince says, call Steve mentor." First thing in the morning, and we'll, we'll sort this out. So the next morning, this kid calls Steve Planimenta, who promptly tells him to crawl back under the rock from which he came. Holy fuck. And that is the end. Two months later, this kid sits on it and eventually calls John Arezzi, who puts him in touch with Lee Cole, where this story comes out. What ends up happening to this kid, I do not know. The story ends there. He may have been paid off, he may not have been, but for whatever reason... That's the end of this tale, but what a turn of events! Holy shit, the
2: WWF. <laughs> what else what, can you say? What kind of fucking organization have we been giving our money to for all these years?
1: Oh man, just the f- again, making it appear to be a sleazy industry, says Dave. If I mean, it's it's that's that's as bad as it gets, right. It really is, and
2: look, I, what I'm about to share can't even hold a candle to that. But it, we need to point this out. Meltzer was told before the Donahue show McMahon was had agreed to appear, provided the Donahue show agrees to a few stipulations. And this is incredible to ask for one. 12 spots in the studio audience for plants. Yeah. Quote, plants in order to try and sway the live crowd at home with audience reactions favorable to McMahon. That is incredible. Okay, so, uh, pal, the story's not too good for me, so I should just be able to get, like, you know, <laughs> my paid, plants that I paid off to say shit so the crowd won't hate me as much. That's incredible. <laughs> Two, McMahon wanted to open the show. Uh, with a two-minute uninterrupted speech. Why? Three. Three. He wouldn't go on alone and would bring two guests, a doctor for credibility if steroids came up, and a lawyer for credibility on legal issues. And then four, David Schultz be bounced from the show. Donahue would not agree to any of the stipulations, although later compromised and agreed to only the fourth one. David Schultz is not on the show. Uh, But at that point, Dave writes, it was obvious McMahon was going to be on the show because he wouldn't have made those demands unless he'd already decided to appear.
4: Exactly. Meltzer, yeah.
2: Meltzer says he didn't know for sure that McMahon was going to appear, though, until an hour before Showtime, nor about Marie
1: Hodgson. Yeah. So, <sighs> 12 plants? I, I really hope that Vince was planning in that two minute uninterrupted speech to just plug WrestleMania.
2: <laughs> yeah. Just I did a
1: speech know. from the start of the show. Yeah. yeah. First plant. Hey,
2: do you know about this double beta effect? <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk about a little bit more because there's so we could honestly do an entire show we about could. the Donahue episode. But this panel is really one of the most amazing things. And when you talk about making wrestling look like the sleaziest business in the world, boy, did this segment yeah. do a good job. And there were just so many just, I don't know if we should call them highlights or lowlights, but so Billy Graham is on the show, okay? (laughs) And he gets, like, this kind of big ovation when he's He's introduced.
1: He's the star. He's the star this whole thing.
2: And and Donahue's like, they still love you, Billy, which I'm just (laughs) like in tears.
1: (laughs) And... uh,
2: we brought up the studio audience is kind of laughing throughout this. They're not taking the subject seriously at all. Uh, one woman asks towards the end of the show, isn't wrestling fixed anyway? And the Dave Meltzer gets very indignant at that. <laughs> yeah, rightly so. He's like, that's immaterial to this. Yeah. That like, <laughs> what does Dottie you say? Well, yes it is. You know, like snake man, you're the bad guy. You're going to lose. But that's not <laughs> what we're talking about. Um, John Arezzi who you referenced that we're going to talk about again in a moment for something separate <laughs> is looking like fucking Bobby Bacala
1: in sunglasses <laughs> and bringing up midget wrestlers. <laughs> this, is so great. this is where, like again, that the subject material is not comical in the slightest. The fact that it's pro wrestling addressing these issues, look, John Arezzi might be the nicest guy in the world. He may even have some kind of eyesight thing like glaucoma or something that requires him to wear sunglasses indoors but yeah. on the off chance that's not true john resi you're on national television talking about very serious issues take your fucking sunglasses <laughs> off you look like a, a fucking car salesman he really did and you know oh, an elvis oh, impersonator from
2: the yeah. latest stages of his life oh don't tell ryan Drosty about that elvis. Yeah. he doesn't like that um I'm gonna, I'm gonna Google Sorry, John. Mate. I'm gonna Google uh John Arezi eyesight just in case you know, here it's case. bad, yeah, just in case. Um, because if it's bad, then we'll just delete this from the we, thing, yeah,
1: we, we will. And again, like, hey, it is nothing personal, I have nothing bad to say about John Arezi apart from the fact that it did look with uh, just the, the optics of this. It's like this looks this is tough enough of And again, when he just mentions there's a midget wrestler called Lord Littlebrook, you hear like the cracker like. <laughs> Yeah, they're like,
2: "What is this story?" And like,
1: this world
2: is just—it's too bizarre. All right, no, I googled John O'Reilly' eyesight. Nothing came up. I think we'll be okay. I'll I'll Google again. I'll I'll Google again after the show. So, and
1: again, that's nothing personal.
2: Yeah. Okay. Anyway, you referenced earlier when Barry Orton was on Larry King and kind of gave a bad performance on the phone because he was unfocused. Meltzer wrote that you know how much time the panel got was not nearly enough to cover the subject, but the people who were too deep in the weeds with wrestling, you could see that problem again here because they yeah. just kept bringing up random things. Like there was, I get that a Rezi, you know, the, the story about the, I guess we shouldn't even use the term midgets anymore. The, the little people wrestling, by the way, I like how Don, he was like, we don't see him anymore. Do we, John? <laughs> like, like <laughs> here's Phil Dottie, you like pining about like the loss.
1: the good old days of Lord <laughs> little brook and the karate kid.
2: Yeah, God, I, I I love that midget wrestling.
1: Yeah. Um, I really liked it when there was a whole lot of beaver all over this place. <laughs>
2: yes, there we go, Bob Uecker. Um, But you know, there was no need to really bring that up. And there's actually a larger issue that we're going to hit at the end about just all these things hitting the general public and how it was probably too much uh, for them. But it just didn't seem, and and this segment really drove it home that there was for the public to really understand what was going on. There wasn't a sort of cohesive argument against why you, the public, should really care about this. It just felt like here's a lot of people lobbing a lot of dirty laundry about this industry that you probably already know is shady as fuck.
1: Yeah, and And, and, and it's worth saying, I honestly think the two people that did the best job of at least trying to was Dave and was Donahue himself. Yes, I would agree with that. Billy Graham was doing
2: (laughs) the whole thing no favors because he was. It just seemed like he's like, oh, I heard about this once, and let me just say it. And look, we know, and we've talked about all this horrible stuff, but like he was just bringing stuff out of the woodwork, just hoping yeah. something would stick. And and he came off as not very credible. Uh, you know, at one point he starts up. It's child molestation of the mind, Leo. <laughs> can Beautiful. I remind? Can I remind you of SummerSlam '88? My commentary, brother. <laughs> I love it, Gorilla! gorilla. Child molestation of the mind!
1: An amazing line. An amazing line. But like you say, Graham sets Vince up for the only, one of the only, if not the only, round of applause he gets when he comes up with some ridiculous tall tall tale, which for all I know may be true. I don't know. But Vince just kills it by saying, well, if you saw that, why wouldn't you call the police? (laughs) Yes!
2: Yeah. Oh, were you just waiting to hope to be called on the Donahue show to bring yeah, it up? Yeah. Years later, yeah. They still love you, Billy. I don't know. That, <laughs> that that got me done. But overall, Donahue did a good job, I think. Uh, when okay. the show was over, Meltzer writes, McMahon could not wait to get out of the room. Before he left, before Vince left, that is, Meltzer said his last words to Vince were the thought that the business was about to go down. Quote, whether this is true or not, I really believed, this is Dave writing, had Hogan told the truth on Arsenio Hall, none of this would have ever happened. We'll, of course, get to Hulk later on, but how many times has Meltzer written this over the last, what, nine months? If Hogan yeah. had just told the truth on Arsenio Hall, none of this would have ever happened.
1: Which, And I believe that to be completely true. And I I, I do remember when Meltzer in 2006 on the F4W show was talking about this and said, you know, I, I felt like I had to tell him he's about to get into his limo. And I stopped him and said, Vince, if Hogan hadn't lied in Arsenio, none of this would have happened. And Meltzer's words after that were, and Vince really didn't want to hear that at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can imagine Vince just like looking like a, just with the most pissed off expression. Yeah, and thanks, Dave. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: thanks, Dave. Observe this, pal. <laughs> oh, my God. Now flips them off. Yeah, <laughs> we are going to hit Hogan a little bit later on. But the night before the Donahue show, many of the same people appeared on John and Rezzy's radio show in New York, uh, a show sponsored by a local video dealer, some clown named Vince Russo. Um, oh, boy. This, of course, is a story into itself as the future of Arezi's pro wrestling spotlight radio show in New York was put in doubt when Russo, the financial backer, had a split with Arezi after he had a meeting with Vince McMahon at Titan Towers, uh, and Russo wanted Arezi to lay off criticism of the WWF after he went there. Uh, Arezi's show had gained a court popularity because he called things as he saw them, and he wasn't seeing things as so positive in regards to the WWF at this time.
2: Okay. On his show, Arezzi says he's going to be starting his own newsletter as opposed to the newsletter Russo did with him, and that the show would be getting a new name since Russo Incorporated and owns the name Pro Wrestling Spotlight. Both Russo and Arezzi are vying for control of the wrestling hour on WEVD. Arezzi signed a personal deal with the station uh, for the show, which costs $1,000 per week uh, for the airtime. However, that future is uncertain with his main sponsor backing out. And yes, to answer the Question room, this is the Vince Russo, and this is how Vince Russo gained entry into the wrestling business. How did this situation turn out, Liam? Not well. Okay. (laughs) Not well. Well, I I mean, aside from Vince Russo's atrocious booking and killing WCW, (laughs) I mean, the the radio show, the deal with Russo and Erezzi here. Like, Russo winds up getting control, and and this is kind of how he becomes Vic Venom. Right. Rick
1: Venom, which leads to him somehow going from writing a newsletter with John Arezzi to writing or being the editor of the WF magazine. Yes. And, and the again, Raw magazine. And then he's writing the show. And Yeah. And again, the key here is Russo meets with
2: McMahon mm-hmm. and all of a sudden decides, hey, you know, tells Arezzi, hey, maybe we should, you know, lay the lay off the criticism on McMahon. Yeah. And Arezzi didn't want to do that. And so, yeah, Vince Russo in the New York market. Here he is, just some local video dealer, and he wants to become a sympathetic ear or uh, to the WWE. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, the rest is history. By the end of the decade, he's writing Monday Night Raw.
1: Unreal, unreal. Yeah. yeah, it's, quite, it's quite, quite quite the story. And I know that um, you know with with Russo, as I understand it, pro Wrestling Spotlight was mostly WCW talk anyway. So like in in a way, with the Rezi, I think that his mentality was like our audience is not really a pro WF crowd in the first place. I think that he once said that it was about 30, to, 25 to 30% WWF talk and WWF listeners. Um, and so as a result, it's like, which is interesting. Plan. it is very interesting. And it, the whole idea of like, well, our audience isn't really the pro WWF audience anyway. So they're kind of probably taking to what's being said about the WWF at this point. Russo obviously feels that it should be the opposite and they go their separate ways. Okay.
2: So, as bad as vince russo is and lord knows he's bad uh something far worse than him getting his foot in the door of the wrestling industry is the story of rita marie the former female referee rita shatterton uh and she comes forward with a claim of rape against vince mcmahon on geraldo Rivera's (laughs) show now it could be told so just for those keeping score at home steroid abuse uh sex scandal with underage boys and now we have um, a former female referee claiming Vince McMahon raped her. And this was again on the Geraldo Rivera show. Now it can be told this
1: is also available on YouTube. It's about an eleven minute segment. This is this. you know what? even though I'm aware of this, just seeing is hearing you say that. it really is quite striking. Like, yeah. That's 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 heavy as it gets. Now, McMahon was aware that Chaton would go on television and talk about the sexual encounter that the two had in the mid-80s in the backseat of McMahon's limo. He wasn't thrilled about it, apparently, feeling it had nothing to do with business. Yeah, so to be clear, okay, Vince did not
2: deny that there was a sexual encounter with her in the back mm-hmm. of the limo. And also, should be pointed, this was before McMahon had admitted had admitted publicly in interviews his numerous affairs behind the back of Wife at the Time, Linda.
1: (laughs) Wife at the Time, Linda McMahon. Now, Vince was said to be shocked when he saw the piece, and she more than implied that it wasn't consensual. Um, Chatton, as it turned out, had made an audio tape for David Schultz with a different story than she was telling, but then made a second tape with a stronger story. Uh, This sure aged well for Vince, didn't it? This story. Yeah, of course, it came back in the news this year before yep. uh, Vince had to
2: step down. Is there anything we'd like to add here? What is the deal with this audio tape with David Schultz? Because no, I didn't not, have any more notes on that.
1: No, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's sketchy. I'm the The implication was that she had told this story to Schultz. Basically, when Schultz was doing his going around digging dirt, he'd heard about this story because I'm sure some people had talked about it. And she, you know, she she stepped up and told the story that she had this encounter with Vince. And a second tape was made. I guess I don't know where the conversations were had where she said that there was more to it. Or again, the I guess the implication is that Schultz prompted to make it more juicy. Um, I'm not saying that that's what happened. I'm just saying that that's the implication being made. So they made the second tape, which had these allegations on. Neither of these tapes, I guess, saw the light of day. But I'm assuming they were sent to certain producers, which is how this makes it to Now It Can Be Told. Okay. And a couple points
2: uh, that we should make about now it uh, can be told people could check that out if they'd like on their own, but there was a lawsuit to prevent Tom Cole from appearing. They wanted uh, to talk to Tom Cole. There was an interview taped with Tom Cole. In fact, that they show with Cole's face blacked out, but that interview could not air because of the settlement he made with Titan. Yeah. And that was a (laughs) real big thing. And Harallo gets, you know, real puffy chest about it and, Talks about how you know they can't stop us from talking about this. Also, how about Geraldo standing in a wrestling ring with those phony wrestlers?
1: <laughs> 19. this is the way that the wrestling that the media views wrestling in 1992, <laughs> yeah,
2: just like some shitty masked guy. And he's like, Come on, guys, give me a match afterwards. That's <laughs> yeah. it. I, I, look, n- not to make light of this story, no. Or- no. Cast any doubts on it, but Geraldo's shitty. I just would yeah. like to say, for the record, yeah. he's he's a Cleveland guy, by the way, Liam. I don't know if you know that. I did not. I saw him. Oh boy, where was I traveling to? It might have been when I traveled to Double or Nothing earlier this year. I saw him in the Cleveland airport. He was looking pretty frail. So I no kidding. I, I shouldn't make fun of him anytime. But I remember years ago, my buddy Alan was at a bar, uh and he's like, "Dude, you'll never believe this. I'm, we're sitting at the bar in Geraldo." just sat down next her. like, well, are you going to hit him or what? <laughs> I fucking hate her all, though. I don't, I don't know. I just, I don't like that mustache. I don't like, but th- this was a pretty strong piece, though. Um, Again, oh, yeah. it makes the
1: WWF look very, very bad. And McMahon this felt... The, this is where the cream team turn gets gets publicly thrown out there, too, just so you know that the severity of this thing. And again, this Rita's chatting story about Vince in the back of the limo and, like, forcing her on him... Pulling her on top of him and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's not to be not to be uh, sniffed at the severity no. of these allegations. No,
2: it's not, and, and obviously with all the stuff that has come out about Vince since, obvi- and, and he never denied the sexual encounter. Uh, mm. yet for the record, but you know, I mean, obviously there is a pattern here of Vince McMahon with inappropriate behavior. With women, I, I think we can all agree on that. Now, McMahon felt all of this happening at once couldn't have been a coincidence, and it is quite amazing in hindsight to see all of those lawsuits and charges come out at the same time. Uh, he insisted at the time in 1992 he would prove that Ted Turner was behind it. <laughs> that melts a wrote, of course. Ted Turner. Uh, Dave would then write, although that was simply preposterous. So, well, yeah, <laughs> you think. Yeah. I mean yeah, Ted Turner's behind. That is absolutely insanity. So I guess we can catch our breath here. We're through the major all the major TV coverage. Yeah. And let's kind of I guess do a bit of a soft right turn away, because there's just some other tidbits that I think we want to hit on here, Liam.
1: Yeah, so we're still staying on the basis of obviously the scandal stuff here, but the the, the sexual abuse stuff we're kind of putting to the side. Just because we're going to hit this stuff now, there's some steroid-related action going on here as well. This is obviously where this story started. In the face of all of the media pressure that's going on at the minute, Vince McMahon hired Dr. Moro Di Pasquale ironically considered the expert in North America on steroids and also beating steroid tests <laughs> in order to be in charge of the steroid tests in theory, upgrading them to make them unbeatable. On paper, that sounds great. You hire the guy who knows how to beat them to uh, close the holes. In the face of all the steroid criticism, McMahon man once again is trying to switch the subject matter, matter from rewarding wrestlers who look like Sid Justice to how much money he's spending on the steroid testing. What a noble effort.
2: And this is truly... An incredible quote from Vincent Kennedy McMahon, quote (laughs) We've come to a point where size doesn't mean anything anymore We'll always have our earthquakes and typhoons but no more steroids (laughs) How the fuck can this man say that? And way to build up your top babyface tag
1: team Vince. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man And again, not to spoil the end of WrestleMania 8 for those who don't know Who's he about to resign? (laughs) Yeah
2: Yeah, we'll we will get to that. But uh McMahon and D Pasquale, they have a press conference and Phil Mushnick calls it a quote tip sheet for steroid junkies. We (laughs) we didn't even really uh what was the uh famous mushnick article in the post called like sex lies and headlocks or something like that? Yeah,
1: because that ended up becoming its own book, didn't it?
2: Yes, it did. And I don't think that was from that same article, but you know, that's when he really starts hammering the WFA, and this story starts blowing up. We don't even need to yeah. go into that because everything he talks about, we've talked about separately here. But there's uh, – I don't know if amusing is correct with these next few tidbits, Liam, but we've got them.
1: Well, and, and again, compared to uh, you know some of the stuff we've talked about, as heavy-handed as that is – the New York Times ran a piece with the mayor of Stamford, Connecticut, proposing to do a show to raise money for the public library at the local high school stadium. The WGF was to provide the wrestlers at no charge for the show. But when the residents of those who live near the stadium heard about the plan, they protested at a city council meeting last week and seemed to have gotten the idea nixed. The show was postponed until a new time and a new venue can be determined which I don't know if it ever was.
2: I don't know if it ever was. I don't know whatever became of the Stanford Public Library. I assume it's still there. But, yeah, no wrestlers uh, helping out there. Uh, Then on the David Letterman show, Letterman joked to guest Howard Stern that it was Howard's first job as, quote, being a ring boy for the WWF. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Belzer wonders if anyone outside of New York understood that joke and I wrote dead in my
1: notes. <laughs> I can't believe Letterman would say you would, I don't even know. I guess I mean I I would like to see that to see what the reaction of the crowd was to see if they got it.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't I didn't track that down at no, that point. I, mean, yeah. I was like Jesus, we don't need to be breaking out more stuff like the Supreme film but yeah, that's um, you know, <laughs> not as bad as what Howard Stern said to Magic Johnson on uh, the subject of HIV. Quote, at least you got AIDS the fun way. Oh my god, that now that it's one of the most stunning things to ever be said on national television. Good magic Lord. was magic was pissed. <laughs> if I you can imagine. Yes. All Jesus. right. All right. I think it's time to maybe put a bow on. Well, I <laughs> guess it, we still have to talk about Hogan, by the way, but we uh, do. It's it's yeah.
1: coming shortly. Now, during this time. Demi- demolition Axe, Bill Edie, uh last seen with his hair looking like shit at the Survivor Series 1990 <laughs> uh, filed his famous suit against the WWF and Vincent Mann for a share of profits because he claimed he came up with a demolition persona among those that Eady's lawyers got depositions from were Earthquake, Big Boss Man Jesse Ventura, Jake Roberts Jim Duggan, Randy Savage Typhoon Cato and IRS, quite why Typhoon, who wasn't in the company when Demolition was founded, was, was talked with. I have no idea, but this is, a, this is quite the, the list of, uh, of people. Yeah, quite the rogue's gallery
2: of depositions is. there. Okay, so there is that. And we've reached what we've, I, I guess we'll call our epilogue here as we try to hmm. wrap up everything we've talked about in the first, oh, I don't know, 100 minutes of this podcast. So 12 years later, Beltzer would say that Cole's story, this is Tom Cole's story, remained believable. Cole's relationship Mm -hmm. when he went back to work in the WWF was predictably rocky. To so many in the company, as business fell off, he, Cole, was one of the people responsible for so much bad publicity. To many, it probably didn't matter that he was likely telling the truth about an ugly situation and part of the business that never should have happened. He and his brother Lee had a falling out almost immediately after Chob went back to work for WWF. Lee switched sides for a second time and went back to speaking out about how things were in the WWF and was mad that all the steroid publicity was getting in the way of what he thought was the real story. Tom Cole eventually felt the company was using him to get back at Mushnick, whom he greatly respected and always defended to other wrestling fans, even that was when that was a highly unpopular viewpoint.
4: Yeah. He
2: has said of all the people he encountered during that period on both sides that Mushnik was the only one he thought was honest. Cole ended up gone fairly quickly from WWF, and there were plenty of incidents afterwards, such as his family once picketing Titan Towers to some local television publicity, And Linda McMahon personally attending his unemployment hearing, which is amazing, Mm -hmm. uh, as Dave would write, for a CEO of a company to do with someone of his stature. When this was all going down, Linda claimed that while at one point she believed Tom's story, now she wasn't so sure. While privately he had reservations about Linda, in a letter to The Observer, Tom said nothing negative about her, thinking she was very different from Vince.
1: Oh, yeah. I got worked. Yeah,
2: uh yeah, imagine. remember when people used to say, oh, Linda was like, is the nice The McMahon? good one,
1: yeah. That's Linda that's
2: McMahon is fucking hideous, okay? Let's just put that on the record right now. <laughs> okay, Cole, yeah. would do nu- Cole would do numerous interviews and remained a wrestling fan despite his experiences with McMahon. Cole even wrote a long letter here when the death of Terry Garvin brought this period back up and got into a legal battle with the publishers of Bobby Heenan's book when Heenan told Cole's story wrong. And, of course, tragically, Tom passed away from suicide last year in 2021.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, Billy Graham himself has since admitted that he fabricated much of what he was saying, in particular, the personal accusations against Patterson McMahon that he admitted were outright lies, uh, blaming it on drug issues that he was going through. Uh, court testimony more than two years later when McMahon was on trial did corroborate what Graham and San Martino had said about steroid use in the company, and nobody these days denies the vast majority of the wrestlers in the 80s are on the juice. Uh, Graeme and McMahon not only made up, but McMahon published his book and inducted him to the Hall of Fame in 2004. When Graham came to SummerSlam, his first time in a company dressing room in more than 14 years, most of the wrestlers treated him like baseball players would if Willie Mays showed up to meet players. They talked about watching him as kids, and many watched videos that Spike Dudley had bought uh, for the big occasion. Others, most notably Jack Lanza and Pat Patterson, did not forgive or forget. They hated the idea he was in the dressing room and being treated like a legend of the business. Uh, Very nicely... (laughs) Triple H decides this is a great time to take a pot shot at Patterson at the Hall of Fame. For those of you who have that DVD, I'm not sure if this is actually on the network or if this has been edited off the network. I've got a feeling it has Um, where Triple H is talking about Billy Graham and said that, you know, some people thought he'd never be here. And certain people said that they wouldn't show up if he was. That's controversy, which was a pot shot at Patterson. And there was a very uncomfortable... This is, this is pre-WWE uh, you know, fans being in the building for this. This is employees only. And there is a noticeable, quiet hush yeah, when he like, says that.
2: Like, So I think they show John Cena. And yeah. I don't know if John knew what was going on and was just like, okay, that sounds like an inside shot at somebody or knew what was going on and was like, okay...
1: Mm, but, like he yeah. clearly
2: has a very uncomfortable reaction to it on camera,
1: yeah, and then just this you can you can feel it in the room. Now Dave Schultz never found a publisher for his book, and uh, no show Donahue allegedly uh, and largely disappeared after legal threats from McMahon, only to return at a fan convention in two thousand and four. Uh, McMahon sued both Mushnik and Rivera but quietly dropped both lawsuits. Uh, neither Garvin nor Phillips were ever welcomed back to the company. McMahon claimed at the time that even though Patterson had done nothing wrong, he would never work for the company again, which seems like a very strange comment to make, really. Uh, <laughs> In hindsight, most question whether Patterson was ever even gone from the company, but he was back in an official capacity within a few months. And in his interview with a wrestling perspective, Tom Cole would later reveal that he was in the office a couple of weeks after he had supposedly resigned and was told, hey, Pat Patterson's in the building. Is that going to be a problem? Maybe you two could have a conversation and smooth things over, blah, 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 blah. Uh, So, yeah.
2: And so, yeah, like we said, what was it? patterson was probably not gone at all even though he publicly resigned interesting i believe it's on the heraldo show that multiple people hypothesize like accusers hodgson is one of them oh i bet you patterson's still working there yeah They're paid yeah. under the table so it's funny that this was not something that kind of came out years later it was something even at the time uh that was being talked about and I believe it's right before SummerSlam or right around SummerSlam 92 that Meltzer reports in the Observer that Patterson is officially back with the yeah. company. So, yeah. okay, spoiler alert again, uh, we're going to not really talk about the scandals for the rest of 92. I know for some people that's, you know, probably cause for celebration, but you can't tell the story of the early nineties WWF without talking about these scandals. Oh, of people, Come on. So... Um. Even though Vince does eventually get indicted late '93 and goes to trial, of course, in '94, Liam, why do you think this story never really stuck in the media? It pretty much goes away right after this heavy coverage in this period we're going to talk about. Like after WrestleMania, Meltzer's talking a little bit about it, about the Hodgson lawsuit that's ongoing, but it, you know, Dave kind of picks up the fact that Hodgson might be full of shit. But there's really. You know, I, there's a terrible episode of Geraldo, actually, right oh, after WrestleMania. That. Yeah, where the woman, the kissing bandit is on and, like, tells women, like, oh, you know, if you didn't want to be raped, why didn't you just keep your legs shut? Which is, like, <laughs> unfucking believable to hear someone say that on national television. Um, but, like, I don't know, With by, like, May and June, it it's really dies down. I want to throw this question to you. I, I mean, I've already asked why do you think it never stuck, but let me just add this in do you agree with the david bixson span point that all of the different scandals here got kind of
1: muddled and it was confusing for the public this is a really i've been thinking about this for a couple of days I, I actually on bix's point i while i see what he means i actually don't know if i believe that that's the case and, and part of the reason why it never stuck. And the, the reason I say that is because I think that if this happened today in this uh, form that it happens, I think that Bix's point would probably be correct because the way that like the internet and Twitter now, the modern age of media, allows stories to kind of percolate and have impact within their kind of own sphere of interest,
4: mm-hmm.
1: having that kind of compressed proliferation of so many stories at once Yeah, that would kind of become very confusing. In 1992, I I don't think that's the the reason. I I believe that the reason, honestly, that most of this stuff even made it as far as it did in the media was specifically because there was such a high volume of scandalous stuff going on Mm. that it made the bigger story. Does Rita Chatterton get to make her allegation on Geraldo if not for the 10 to 20 things that had happened before this that set the table... For this show, for this allegation to be made, the answer is probably not, and that's a shame because that 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 speaks nothing to the validity of what she said. But and the, the, the thing is here, and I've been I, I've alluded this to you, Kyle. But the dirty secret: this is the public doesn't give a shit. No. they don't. They don't give a shit. They don't know who Mel Phillips is. They don't know who Terry Garvin is. Tom Cole, Pat Patterson, Murray Hudson. As you said, Vince McMahon isn't a household name in 1992. He's like, you know, the the ability to do these appearances is rare. Not if Joe, you know, John Q. Walmart, as you've said before, on the street, isn't going to know necessarily who Vince McMahon is. The public has no emotional investment in these people. So in isolation, each of these stories are the kind of thing that might make the paper for a day, maybe a week. People read it, digest it, react, move on, forget. And in a way, that's kind of what does happen here. But that stuff that we're seeing here, to me, it's only news as big as it is and as big as it gets because it's part of the overall narrative that the media thought could have legs. The WWF is dirty, riddled with scandal. And again, why was that news? Because Hogan, the celebrity, the one person everybody did know, lied on Arsenio. I mean, we've got Mm -hmm. a precedent for this because the WWF being dirty was the story during the Zahorian trial. But as we talked about, when Hogan had to testify, the media was gearing up when he no longer had to testify, thanks to Jerry McDivitt, the media interest in the story plummeted, even though the story itself, the WWF, it the is the same, working with the drug doctor, but no one cared to push it without Hogan. When Hogan lied and the WWF backed up the lie, it opened up the floodgates for people to come forward with this anti-WWF, anti-Hogan talk. And still, like we say, people in the crowd, people in the audience, they're only going to care so much. And if you need proof, look at those audience questions on Donahue again. The people, the woman in the crowd who says... Yeah, Yo, you can tell it's sleazy by looking at it, <laughs> which I love. Oh, it, okay, yeah, okay, Kim. I want to defend that woman because I think there's, <laughs> res-
2: I think there's wrestling fans now who, if that woman said that on a forum like that, they would like track her down on Twitter and make her life hell. Oh, of course. And, 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 what What was the exact line she opened up with? Why would anyone watch this? It seems so tacky.
0: Yeah, I think yeah. she says.
2: I think that's a window into the soul of yes, how is. The, the non-wrestling general pu- fan, general public, viewed this. They're just like, this is a shit industry anyway. We know it's shit. Um, you know, Donnie, who even says, oh, I don't think people should go to jail for doing steroids. We didn't know about steroids back then. And then, you know, to a certain point, he, he's. I, I agree with him. But, you, you know, I, I mean, I think it, it's just... At the end of the day, people don't give a fuck enough about pro wrestling no. for this to stick. And I, I think that's what it was, to be honest. I
1: agree. I agree. I think that this public, as, we, as we're seeing them here and as we've talked about, they're not going to give 30 seconds of thought to these stories, but, unless it was presented in the form of, this is a company riddled with scandal. And, and that's and, and the Hogan aspect. That's why this 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 made it as far as it did and got as much spotlight as it. to suggest anything else to me. Well, I know it's made with good intentions. I think it massively overestimates the general public and their desire to in, to, to ingest this news to me. that and, and that's why it didn't stick to me. The only way when you watch this and if this happened now, it's the same thing. The ways that this will really have an impact is not the fact that it's going to stay in the public eye because nothing does really from a news perspective unless it becomes more and more and more sensational with every passing development. That's not going to happen here. We've had this massive dump of of, of info, uh, which is scandalous and sleazy and all of that. So at this point, it's hard to go up. The only real impact we're going to see at this point is TV stations dropping, which I don't think happened. Sponsor, sponsors leaving, which did to a degree. Uh, the government but- getting involved, which, which even though, I mean, the government did interview a lot of these people regarding these allegations, but they decided to go the steroid distribution route. Mm-hmm. And finally, the way that it was really going to stick was convincing that one celebrity, Hulk Hogan, to get the fuck out.
2: And that brings us to the next chapter of today's podcast. So on the last podcast, we had a section called When It Comes Crashing Down and It Hurts Inside. Those famous words from Real American. Well, today's chapter about the Hulkster reads, when it really comes crashing down and it really hurts inside. (laughs) Hulk quits in cocaine shame, read a front page story in the London Daily Mirror. This came, that's your side of the pond, buddy. Uh, This came on the heels of a major piece in the Los Angeles Times, which linked Hogan with both steroids and cocaine. That piece was then picked up by numerous newspapers around the country.
1: This is amazing stuff from the uh, from the mirror here. Now, by the time we are airing this, I will be um, posting something, which will show you this. I, I, I dug this out. I found the newspaper. I found the front page. Uh, I will be posting this uh, in, in the days before I post this podcast. So uh, look out for that because it's good stuff. Superstar wrestler Hulk Hogan, idol to millions of children, quit the ring yesterday after being branded a junkie, the story says. That alone, that first line. And this is on the front page of the fucking newspaper. I couldn't believe it when I saw it now, in my own eyes. Just for the Americans listening here. Yeah.
2: The, the Daily Mirror... Where does that kind of rank in the uh,
1: it's it's the news it's, for you guys? it's like it's like the second biggest tabloid. The okay. sun is the sun is number one. The mirror was number two. OK. Um. Yeah. So it, this is a heavy hitter. This is not like, you know, the local, you know, the even like something like the Birmingham Mail or anything like that. this is national coverage. Um. It says London Daily Mirror, but it's the paper that goes out to the whole country. OK, um, gotcha. Yeah, so the the story continues. The six foot six inch grappler was said to be taking cocaine and cannabis and had been hooked on illegal bodybuilding steroids. His promoter, Vince McMahon, announced he is taking an indefinite break. It might be six months. It might be a year. It might be forever. Hogan, 38, has always presented a squeaky clean image to his worldwide arm of young fans he calls the Hulksters. Uh, the article at that point, when you go inside and, and, and it's, it, it moves to like page six or something like that. And that's where it says Hawk quits and cocaine shame. It goes on to hit kind of the familiar quotes from, from Graham and Orton to do with like, you know, taking the cocaine on the plane Orton talking about steroids. Uh, it also erroneously claims that the Arsenio Hall situation, where he went on television and denied taking steroids uh, with the three exceptions. Uh, they said it happened the week before, which is not true. It was nine months before, but uh, yeah, this, uh, this is a big story and a big deal. This, I'm trying to find the date because I did have it and I had it written down. I think I may have lost it, sadly. But yeah, this is like March 13th, I want to say. I've okay.
2: So that's right around the same time as the Donahue show is mm-hmm. taking place and what have you. It's all in that same week from hell for Vince. So I know there's another story out there. I don't know if they reference this in the mirror or not, that Hulk injured another wrestler over in Japan while allegedly high on cocaine. The bottom line is, the media really latched onto the notion of again the one person everybody knows, the Kitty Star Hulk Hogan was doing cocaine.
1: Yeah, that's the that's, that they love
2: that. That's the and key. Why do you think that is? So I, again, you know, between the sheets, different podcast, a podcast we both I know respect, they covered mm-hmm. this in great detail. This story, Chris Zellner brought up the point, and I think it's a point I agree with. That. Hogan doing cocaine or, you know, steroids, even just drug use is something that people are more comfortable talking about, even joking about, um, as opposed to like the sex scandals, which, you know, that's kind of a story like, oh, God, Mm. like and and it's not something you want to talk about as
1: much publicly. Do you think there's anything to that? that this is something by the nature that's more socially easy to approach in terms of the uh emotion behind it i could agree with that for sure um that said i think that if hogan was the one involved in the fondling with the kids i think that would have been even bigger so it's, it's hogan. Back <laughs> to your earlier point it's Hogan uh, it's uh, pr- primarily the name, your primarily I I do agree with this point. I understand what he's saying. But I think that if you actually think of it that way, where like if you mix what the story is, just think how big that would have been. Yeah,
2: you're right. And I agree with you on that 110%. So during that week, according to Hogan's friends, the pressure had gotten to him to the point where he had decided to retire from wrestling after WrestleMania, except for working major Japan shots. And he was wanting to move out of Tampa to Hawaii to get away from it all. Uh, He did not end up moving to Hawaii, Mm. for the record. Uh, It was not hard to get wrestlers to talk about Hulk Hogan and steroids. And now Billy Jack Haynes, remember him, had (laughs) his reason to talk. Haynes was another person with credibility issues, writes Dave Meltzer, but not when it came to Hogan and steroids, as he was telling the truth there. Surprisingly, Meltzer wrote, Haynes didn't blame McMahon, as most others in the business do for Hogan's performance on Arsenio. Liam, would you like to take it from there?
1: yeah this is billy's quote he says i think vince filled his head up but hulk has a brain of his own he's the best in the business the best there's ever been a gang over with the public it's bs to blame vince that was hogan talking if he was a man and vince told him to lie he'd go on television and tell everyone that he was told to say something and then tell the truth but this business doesn't have a lot of stand-up guys david schultz is one billy graham is one and so is rick rude boy did that <laughs> <laughs> oh <Oy. laughs> How did Rick Rude get lumped in with the uh, truth tellers of this industry there? I
2: don't know if Rick should be honored or flabbergasted about his name got referenced there.
1: Yeah, a rough association there for old Rick. Um, Haynes also claimed to have injected Hogan on more than one occasion. Why doesn't Hogan just inject himself, for Christ's sake? Why are you getting everybody else to do it? And that Hogan had injected him in return. He's an innocent victim up to a point, says Haynes. When you're using your name to sell vitamins to children when you got big by using drugs, you're not very innocent. Even though this business is a work, you have to draw the line somewhere. I know Hulk will hate my guts for saying this, but it's the truth.
2: Yeah. Now, Dave, uh, he's talking about jokes that don't age well here. (laughs) Uh, He notes that it is unfair for Hulk to be the scapegoat here. For the hypocrisy of wrestling in general, and we touched on that many times yeah. in the last couple podcasts. But then Dave goes on to say, "It's just like it was unfair for Ben Johnson to be the scapegoat for Olympic drug testing when, quote, Florence Griffin Joyner really did need a shave worse than Bruce Willis." Dave,
1: <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> that was that was quite uh, quite the quite the comment there. I couldn't leave
2: that out when I saw that. I was just like, my God. <laughs> so, uh, McMahon does admit, uh, or did admit, that Hogan didn't tell the complete truth on our City Hall, but denied he had anything to do with what Hogan said, except he told Hogan to tell the truth.
1: Yeah, which, you know, him admitting that Hogan didn't tell the complete truth translates to, I know that was total bullshit, but there's absolutely no way I'm ever going to admit that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and I And I never can. Yeah. And
2: McMahon goes on to say that he was, quote, devastated when mm-hmm. Hogan didn't tell the complete truth, which is funny because this leads to one of the kind of great moments back to yeah. the Donahue show when John Arezzi says, is it true, Vince, that you were devastated, Hogan, didn't tell the truth? And Vince is like, well, I don't know if I ever said I was devastated.
1: And Mc- and uh, Meltzer's Meltzer. like, well, that's what you said to me. Yeah, the word you used to me was devastated. And, and Vince apparently was convinced that they'd set him up with that. As a one-two, yeah,
2: that he was in a handicap match and something he, yeah. he was pissed, and Meltzer looked pretty proud of himself too. He, <laughs> yeah, that. And so and he should have been. He should have been too. A lot of <laughs> that Florence Griffith Joyner lie, Dave. <laughs>
1: However, says Dave Meltzer The blame can't be shifted away from the WWF Since in media questions regarding this subject Steve Planamenta Who represents the WWF Parroted Hogan's three lines for therapeutic reasons line In regard to Hogan's steroid use But man can't shift the blame for the lie And that's the correct word All the way to Hogan One WWF source who is close to Hogan Then McMahon parroted McMahon's version that Vince wanted Hogan to tell the truth, and it was Hogan on his own who decided to lie. Uh, This is Meltzer's words here, of course. Uh, But in replaying the tape, the Arsenio interview was a promo for the WWF steroid policy, and most of what he said appears to have been coached. Most importantly, Hogan has had eight months to tell the truth and instead has refused to not only address the issue, but of late, even talk with the media, which is tremendous in the sense of if you really need any proof about whose words they were to me if Hogan uh, Hogan's the reason Hogan said I do believe that this was Hogan first and foremost Hogan choosing to say that on Arsenio Hall I completely believe it was his idea thinking it would be the right thing to do Mm -hmm. and uh, the fact that he doesn't even try to correct it under the excuse of it wasn't me it wasn't my words tells me that it was his decision
2: yeah, I'll go with that. And you know that last sentence you read there—that uh, mm. h- has refused to not only address the issue, but of late, even talk with me. It's crazy how you know Vince is out there doing these shows, but Hulk is just persona non grata in the. He, movie. Isn't, he is. He is. He doesn't say a out goddamn, out goddamn All of this. Yeah, because if you go back to oh, was it four A or four B? I can't remember. It was definitely part four of our ninety-one series. Hogan just hung himself, yeah. In the promotion of Suburban Commando, with all the lies, and Meltzer had even noted it at the time in the Observer that he was basically waving a red flag, daring the Bulls to come charging,
4: yeah. because it was
2: uh, everything he was saying was you know such nonsense. Not even the silly things like when he compared the name Hulk Hogan to Jesus Christ. I'm talking about <laughs> like you know like just how what a squeaky clean image he had, and you know reiterating the the, the bullshit he had said on Arsenio. Yeah, I mean so. He dug that hole for himself. So, already poised to take a hiatus after WrestleMania, now a lightning rod of bad publicity, Hogan now had to begin to wrestle with, pun intended by me, the idea he may have to permanently exit the business, which made him a household
1: name. So Meltzer says WrestleMania will be the last booking for Hulk Hogan at least for a while. Hogan will leave after WrestleMania to do a movie in brackets, rough guys (laughs) set for a January... Yeah, (laughs) Don't know if that ever made the big screen. Set for a January 93 release. And if he ever returns is a matter of conjecture.
2: Yeah, interesting. Mm. It was also being reported at this time that WrestleMania 9 could take place in Tampa. I didn't know that. Neither did I. And I wonder if they were thinking maybe, or who knows if that's even sure how close, obviously it doesn't take place in Tampa, it takes place in Las Vegas. But I wonder if they were like, oh, okay, we're going to really roll out the sympathetic carpet for Hulk and it's going to be a Hogan homecoming, not just his return. So um, I could see that. Yeah, I I could too, the more and more I thought about it. Uh, But on television, In March of 1992, late March. And on television is all, as you know, Liam, where WWF, WWE has always felt the most safe.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: Vince McMahon came up with a storyline for Mania that this may be Hogan's retirement. And that after his match with Sid Justice, he was likely to make the announcement. Even with the negativity towards Hogan in the mainstream media, McMahon's angle made him a sympathetic character to wrestling fans. Rally the base! Yeah. Uh, And I guess now is when we should talk about the USA Network special, which had the Vince McMahon
1: interview with Hulk Hogan. This interview is very weird. So those of you, if if you've never actually seen the interview, I may play a clip of it here. In fact, I'm probably going to.
5: Then is this your last match? This WrestleMania,
3: is this the last time we see you step into the ring? When you ask that question, it makes me sweat. Um... Everywhere I've been, people say, Hulk Hogan. We know you've got a lot of things going. You're starting to divide your interests. You've got family, you've got business, wrestling business, you've got other type of ventures out there. Are you going to retire? Then I hear on the other side of the coin, are you going to be able to get by Sid Justice? When I sit here and actually think about my last match at WrestleMania, it chills me to the bone. Being able to handle happiness, within my personal life and happiness on a professional level has been one of the greatest accomplishments that I could brag about. So when I talk about letting all that go, putting all that in jeopardy by saying, yes, this is my last match, or by even let, letting someone influence me, such as Sid Justice, saying, Hulk Hogan, I'm going to make sure this is your last match. All of those thoughts I put out of my head. I'm the only one that can make that decision, Vince McMahon. And right now, I have to tell you, at WrestleMania, I just won't know until I come out of the ring if it was my last match.
5: Well, then, whether or not this is your last match, I'd like to say that on behalf of all of us, your Hulkamaniacs, thank you for the memories, thank you for the inspiration, and thank you for Hulkamania.
1: Thank you the interview that they play a bit of on WrestleMania 8, where it is Vince McMahon sat in the chair with Hogan in the red bandana, and there's the the uh, big pictures in the background of Hogan throughout his career and it's, stuff it, like that. It's the March to WrestleMania 8 Yes, special. that's the one. That's I was reaching for the name in my head. That's what it's called. The March to WrestleMania show. I think it's actually on the network as an episode of Primetime Wrestling. Um, So you can find it there. Oh, okay. But, uh, yeah, um, I mean... Before we even get to this promo, Hogan's interviews take a really weird turn around mid-March, funnily enough, when when, when the call is made for him to go. At one point, he does an interview where he talks, he refers to himself as the old man in the yellow boots, you know, Mm. know, having one more match kind of a thing. Sid starts talking about how Hogan's put out the rumor that it might be his last match for sympathy, which I quite liked. Uh, Sid now has Harvey Whippleman by his side, and he's and he's doing the stretcher jobs and the beatdowns uh, in the build-up to WrestleMania. At one point before a squash match, he's reading a letter from a Hulkamaniac, uh, where the Hulkamaniac is asking him why he destroyed Beefcake, which is interesting. Okay, um, can I be honest
2: with you? And maybe this will earn me some scorn uh, from the <laughs> other side of the pot. I kind of liked that. Oh, yeah. The, the, <laughs> when he's reading the <laughs> letter. Because, like, yeah, because it was done in the most Sid way possible. I mean, yes. he, he didn't even really attempt to do a job. Like I don't know if he, how did it take, like, did like Sid think he was doing a good job? Making people believe that the letter was real, or did he just like completely no sell the idea that the letter was real and just did it the most silly way possible? Either way, I I got a chuckle out of it.
1: Oh, for sure, and especially when at the end the, the, the supposed letter says, "If you're if you, I, I'm not your friend. If you do do this, then I don't want to like you anymore." And it's like, "That's great, because I don't like you either." Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I don't want to like you either, but yeah, the interview is so strange with Vince at the end. Of, Thank you for the memories. Thank you for Hulkamania, <laughs> and and Hogan's then nodding his head calmly, acting so humble, so poised. What yeah, a great but, guy! Uh, at the same time, he looked uncomfortable. Oh dear, and that's why I find it weird. Vince is in full Vince. Vince is actually in his mind. You can see he's going to make the most of this, and he's he's mm-hmm. going for the you know the tone of the interview. At the same time, Hawk looks so ungodly uncomfortable because he's in a position that honestly he doesn't want to be in. He does not want to be doing this, and here he no. is talking about you know how everything's going on, and even in his verbiage when he's talking about this, he's completely non-committal to anything, even in response to Vince, and it's just you watch this, and I am even as a kid when I first saw this on the WrestleMania Eight video, I'm like, well, what the fuck is this? Because is it? Why they're talking about a last match, but they're not. It's like it never actually happened to the show. No, you wouldn't even know. No, and
2: we're gonna talk about that obviously yeah. at the end of the podcast because it's it's quite the um, you know, you use the word non-committal, and I think uh Hogan's non-committalness came out front and center yeah. at WrestleMania 8. It really very much was the a kind of interview that we'd never seen on WWE television before. They they tried to obviously make it you know, where Hogan's sympathetic, it's just his last match. Come on, Hulksters, we need to unite to get it behind Hulk so he can beat the evil Sid Justice. But there was that element of truth kind of looming in the room about why it was his last match. It. But they didn't want to say it. Yeah. And so we, and I'm old enough that I saw this at yes. the time. And I again, I don't think I truly grasped what I was watching. But I think I sensed that it was weird, like, because you do sort of sense that it's not interviewer talking to pro wrestling superstar. It was very much promoter talking to his top draw for the last eight years. Yeah. Face to face. At least that's what I got. Um, you know, with all, all these years of hindsight, you talked about how the end of that interview was aired at WrestleMania 8 pre-match before Hogan and Justice. I really like when they show that and me and Gene's like, see, Sid, Hulk Hogan never said this would be his last match. And Sid's like, shut up, you bald-headed (laughs) oaf. Sid with one last good line before uh, he goes packing too. But uh, we're going to talk about the Hogan-Justice match and its aftermath, certainly, in a little bit. But it is worth noting, and this goes back to what we talked about on the last podcast. And I mentioned at the top of this one, business was still okay in some places, maybe not in others, but on the March 23rd, MSG show with flair and justice versus Hogan and Piper, that only drew 9,000 fans. And Dave yeah. says that had to be a major disappointment said them since the match had generally done very well everywhere else. In fact, There was what may have been an all-time record gate in Memphis on March 14th of nearly 90,000. The largest Memphis gate Meltzer had ever heard of was 80,000 about six years prior for a Ric Flair-Jerry Lawler match. Uh, Should be noted, by the way, Liam, that March 23rd, Mm -hmm. Hogan's final MSG show for basically a decade. And it was the final WWF show televised on the MSG network for five years. Yeah, incredible. I think incredible. there was uh, the the pre WrestleMania 13, right? Uh, was there like a four way or
1: something? Because that that shows on the network.
2: Yeah, like Undertaker yeah. and Vader are involved at some point.
1: Bret Hart does something. So. Yeah, they're I think maybe Austin's in there. But I, I I remember I know what you're saying because and it's interesting this because after you know we've been doing these podcasts for a while and obviously with it with the Monday Night War timeline series that you talked about at the start of the show. The <laughs> please the, bring it back. <laughs> One of the, one of the things I've noticed is like it's very, they hate
2: me. I'm an American Leo. That's they not are. true.
1: They that's not true, man. They love you. They love you. Yeah. They still love you, Kyle.
2: They still love you, Billy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's it's interesting to note that I I've I've started to pick at those innocuous melter lines. And, try, and even though sometimes that can be a bad thing in trying to draw big conclusions, but that line earlier on that you had in the notes, when Meltzer said, I wonder who got that joke, not in New York, on the Letterman show, tying into this, where business is good in some places, but New York dies.
4: Ooh.
1: And I wonder if there was a bigger impact in New York, the home base, where again, that's where Donahue's filmed, I think, right? I don't know. Is it? I'm pretty. It, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Is it's, it Pittsburgh? Because it it's was Pittsburgh or... or New York. But I remember okay. that kid again. That kid that we talked about the plant. Uh, he was New York local. So it, I, I I think it's it's somewhere around that region anyway. So okay, well um, I'm take. I, I'm bringing it up here. Uh, Phil Donahue show. Uh, it's run was
2: uh, oh, Dayton, Ohio. It actually started, but hold on here. Dayton start fainting hoax. What Oh my God, I don't want to get to it. I don't want to get down to a rabbit hole here. <laughs> um. So in 85, Donahue left Chicago for New York City and began recording in
1: studio 8G at 30 Rockefeller Plaza. Okay, there you go. There you go. Yeah. So I wonder if that's the deal where like this had really made, especially again, Phil Mushnick, New York Post. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, that's the. It's like I wonder if that had a bigger impact uh, on this particular gate and interest in the New York uh, area. Yeah, I mean it's really
2: weird that it had done well everywhere, but then they, you know, hit their biggest place and, and it doesn't do so well. I think you're on to something there. Okay, again, we're going to hit Hogan and Justice, what happens at WrestleMania Yes, 8, we'll come to this. certainly what happens afterwards, but we're going to get to that at the end because we have the other half of the double main event to talk about, Liam. Uh, as I wrote in the notes, oh, yeah, or is it, oh, yeah, uh, because <laughs> we need to talk Ric Flair and Randy Savage. We, in the last podcast, said uh, that it had been hinted in the newsletters that the Ric Flair, Randy Savage, WF title feed would revolve around photos of, quote, Elizabeth or something. Sure enough, it did. Uh, Flair cuts an incredible promo, which took many takes apparently, and ends mm. with the classic line: "She was mine before she was yours."
1: Yeah. Well, we say ending with the classic line. He did say it about five times in yes. the promo.
2: Yeah,
4: that's <laughs> so,
1: true. I think he's probably been saying it all day by that point. Great sweater from Flair here. Um, <laughs> I want to point that out. Also, really hitting the heart, the the, the line of damaged goods. She's yeah. damaged goods Se- yeah. several times again. Now, I don't know if you picked up on this.
2: Meltzer, multiple times the Observer talks about how this promo apparently took like 17 takes to do. Yeah. And, well, I was fascinated by his kind of analysis here because – He used that as a excuse to kind of pot shot WCW and he's like, oh, you can really tell the difference, a promotion that wants things perfectly and another one that just wants to pump out content that, you know, he was basically saying, oh, WWF just wanted to get this perfect. But when I, not to be confused with Mr. Perfect, but when I read that line initially that it took 17 takes, my head wandered off to something that we talked about at the end of 91 that there seemed to be an issue with Flair cutting promos in this promotion, and I wonder if he—the reason it took so many takes—is he not doing it the way Vince wanted? Did you so. take it that way? Okay,
1: it's ex- exactly how I interpreted that.
2: Okay, so and that's interesting because on the last show where we talked about the Royal Rumble '92, obviously, uh, and Flair was very much looking at his most comfortable as an in-ring performer in mm. WWE. Well, this angle, in my opinion, was the most comfortable he ever was as a character in the WWF circus. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. Uh, We get more promos, uh, including one at a bar with Vince, where I would have loved to be a fly on the wall during production for that.
1: (laughs) Uh, Vince, by the way, drinking milk. Yeah. Well, he's a good good American boy. (laughs) What a nerd. Uh, There's a... (laughs) funny
2: tnt reference during that show the show tuesday night titans uh <laughs> flair's showing the pictures of him and liz and he goes oh look at us watching a show i wasn't a big fan of at that time <laughs> that <laughs> chunk. uh we have another promo where mean gene boards flair's yacht uh that looks like he's having a much better time with flair than vince did i mean imagine the drinking that took place yeah. after that was about- <laughs> shot yeah no milk served here no, especially not on Mean Jeans, uh, or Flair, for that matter. Uh, right before Mania, there's another awesome interview in front of a private plane where Flair promises to reveal a, quote, centerfold at Mania.
1: Yeah, and, and and I think that feels quite desperate. <laughs> in fact, very desperate, I'll say so that much. I, that didn't hit me at the time. Then when I saw your notes, and I went back and looked, I was like, yeah, this totally is desperate. Like, the, the combination of all of a sudden Hogan's retirement... Oh, and and by the way, you might get naked, Liz. After all these years, like it's just the fact that it was done so late in the game. For, you, know, you you talked about you know this being an awesome uh, promo in front of the private plane as he's heading to WrestleMania. I this is the most Ric Flair, Ric Flair ever gets to me in the WWF. He gets a Space Mountain reference in at long last. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I, I in these promos, like Flair is like never. He's never got the belt with him, which always strikes me as strange. Um, no matter what he's wearing, whether it's sweater, whether it's suit, whether it's coat uh, mm-hmm. or robe, he's never got the belt with him, which I find bizarre. Um, we also, there's another promo, which is really weird, where it's like Flair and Perfect, in what feels like some kind of theatre, doing this big speech where you hear like a big applause, but the camera's then cut to show there's absolutely nobody in this theatre at all. And we get like repeated like pans across empty chairs as Perfect and Flair do this bullshit speech. Um, talking about Liz and Wrestlemania. Very odd idea for a promo. It was. That wasn't the
2: idea that it was all the people who supported Liz and Randy showed up, and the joke was, well, nobody showed There's up, no so one no one there. must... Yeah. But it,
1: it... It just makes uh, for yeah. a very weird atmosphere.
2: No, it does, it, and it's wrestling. I, I, I think that promo was a case of outpicking themselves. I thought that was the weakest of the mm. bunch. I, I think somebody I thought it was a funny idea, and it just came across as is very weird now randy savage there's an interview uh mean gene does with Mean gene really seems like he's playing with fire uh you know pressing him and savage's only response is not true he just keeps yelling over and over again uh pictures published in the wwf magazine of rick flair and liz certainly people have seen that there is actually an entire uh i don't i can't remember what they called this series but they looked at the feud of Savage and Flair on the network, or Peacock, as it's known here in the States. Uh, People can look that up. I actually watched it last night, learned absolutely nothing. But uh, (laughs) then again, I've been (laughs) preparing for this podcast for weeks or months almost, it seems. So I wasn't (laughs) going to learn anything from a WWE-produced 20-minute special. Uh,
1: Entertainment Tonight involvement was discussed on television? Leon, I, could, I couldn't see any record of this. They, they mention it a few times, though. Like Vince is just like, you know, <laughs> this is something to talk about, by the way. Yeah, I see no record of the Entertainment Tonight stuff. This basically ties up where at the March to WrestleMania, the same show that Hulk Hogan sits down and talks with Vince, there's an interview with Vince McMahon and Miss Elizabeth.
0: This, this is incredible. This is special. I,
2: I had never... I don't, I don't want to say I'd never seen it before, but I'd completely forgotten about it, and my jaw was on the floor. I, I messaged you as soon as I said it. Yeah. Wait till you watch this. I know I exactly could.
1: what you're going to think. I, I And you are correct. The nature of the way Vince is setting it up and Liz is hitting it out there it is basically they may as well have had Liz screaming, hey, anybody, false allegations can happen to anybody. It can be false. Are you listening, WWF fans? Allegations about the WWF can be false. And Vince is there. Do you feel like, I can't remember his exact words, but it's like, do you feel like you've been, you know, uh, taken advantage of? And, and, and things along these lines, it's like, you motherfucker, you yeah, motherfucker. And, and it was like, oh, the, the W,
2: you know, Liz is talking about how WF magazine had always been so nice to her and Randy, but they just, they published these allegations without even checking with them first. Yeah. And they're giving credence. To Ric Flair that they're, you know, they're giving uh, credibility to Ric Flair. It made me think after I watched this interview. (laughs) And again, I referenced it earlier that Meltzer had reported, you know, weeks in advance that this storyline was set to revolve around photos of Elizabeth. I got to wonder, though, do you think they did? And it made sense, you know, to do this match. I, I think it did juice it up quite a bit. But do you think they did this angle? as a way to try to thumb their nose at the media coverage of the promotion. It, after I watched this interview, I came to that
1: conclusion that that was the driving force behind doing this storyline. I think that is a great assessment. I, I, again, it's not something that I've ever put two and two together with before, but when you look at the way that it goes and how hard they hit that aspect of it, the media and the, the reputation damage and stuff is like this – just feels like the biggest coincidence and i don't believe in big coincidences like that this can be found on youtube or like liam said it can be found on the network you really really
2: have to watch this interview Vince man does with liz because it is a total metaphor for um with liz basically playing the role of the wwf uh you know getting hit with all these allegations and how would you feel about just all these false
3: allegations
2: being thrown <laughs> at you it was just unbelievable.
5: Do you feel as though your reputation has been besmirched in any way?
3: Oh, of course I do. I I feel terrible about it. I feel badly not just for myself, but for my family and and for Randy's family that that everyone now is looking at us a little bit differently.
5: Are you different, Liz?
3: I think I'm probably yes, a lot different. I think they but what, what's more important is the idea that this can happen to anyone—that a person like Ric Flair can say something is true and people believe it—and and it can happen to anyone at any time. It's, it's, it's just shocking.
5: So you feel vulnerable
3: then? I feel vulnerable. I think, um, yeah, I'd say I feel pretty vulnerable.
2: Now, in our last episode, Liam. You said this feud, Savage Flair, felt a lot hotter than Hogan and Justice was by the time we got to WrestleMania Eight. I have this question for you: How much of that is the angle itself, and how much of it is that it started later? Because hmm. it felt like setting up Hogan Justice was priority number one for Mania, and as a result, that issue seemed as at its hottest in early February, around the time of uh, the main event.
4: Yeah,
1: but this Flair Savage angle, it didn't even get going on TV until March. Yeah, yeah. Now, I absolutely see it. timing of it. By the time we get to Mania Rate, timing is a factor. But I still will stand by the idea that I think Hogan and Sid was missing the big angle. When you watch Hogan's promos in the, to be honest, the final, maybe even the entire time, it's like he could be talking about anybody. Hogan talking about how when he was a kid, he went swimming into the ocean and killed a shark that was scaring the 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 people in the ocean. and Then he went back to the <laughs> beach and drank a piña colada. It's like, what the fuck is this got to do with Sid Justice? Like, you know, at one point, I, I, again, Hogan is there looking at us with these like sad puppy dog eyes, talking about the wrath of Sid Justice. And at this point, Sid's done like nothing but beat up like Mike Bell and some fucking losers on television <laughs> and broke Virgil's nose. And he's like, the path of destruction that this man's gonna create. Can you imagine the things that he's going to do? The things he has done. Can you imagine about Brutus? And it's like, who gives a fuck about Brutus Beefcake? He's not, nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing's happened with Brutus Beefcake. He showed up with you at the main event out of nowhere. By the way, your friend till the end. And then Sid smashed up his shop and he ran off. Like and he, a pussy. And, and, he, and, he, yeah, and he like never came back. Never came back. We never saw him again. So it's like, what about Brutus? Like, who cares? Like, wait, yo, we have seen this easily, to me, if we even remove the Savage and, and, uh, and Flair stuff, this is the weakest build for a Hogan Mania match, to me. Even more so than the Warrior, which we talked about in the 1990 series, where at least they had the incredible showdown at the Rumble, and even if the promos were about a bunch of nonsense in the build-up, you at least were, were, were tied to the fact that it's the big babyface match and you got that. Here, the biggest moment, I guess, I mean, the showdown at the Rumble kind of didn't go the way they wanted anyway because ended up no. with Sid getting cheered. So, yeah, I mean, even, even though I enjoy that, I can't say that that's the thing to get me hyped for the match. The big angle is the main event. And after that, it's almost like I'm waiting for one big thing to happen it to get does. heat on to, to get heat on Sid so that Hogan can, can fight back from underneath against this new dominant monster. And instead, he's just like putting jabronis on stretches, which is entertaining if the match is happening in six months' time. But this is it. Like this is it?
2: Yeah, you know, great points, and I'll add this about, you know, historically where this would rank among Hogan mania main events. Mm. Certainly, it's it's towards the bottom. I, I better than Slaughter the previous year though, just because the Slaughter thing had so much distasteful shit behind it. But I, I can't think of an, a weaker one uh, for Hogan. And uh, here's the thing: Sid turning on Hogan. It. it I, I. I don't think I'm breaking uh you know uh, any news to anyone with this but it just didn't have anywhere close to the effect that an orndorff or certainly an andre or a savage did years earlier mm. the friendship angle between the two was just not particularly strong no, yeah. it was just sort of like hogan was wronged by a fellow babyface i mean the only interaction the two of them had before the rumble was the summer slam main event where Sid was the referee and was supposed to call it down the middle. Now they posed at the end together, but there was no friendship between the two really on screen. As a matter of fact, Sid was more tied to Randy Savage in the fall before he got hurt. So, okay. We agree when you compare the two halves, the double main event, Hogan and justice by WrestleMania time is the weaker of the two stories, but would you call the savage flair angle effective going into mania? I would, I think. Okay, yeah, I, I think at the very least it's good, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, effective is kind of a subjective term. We, we know that in terms of box office, it wasn't particularly successful, but I think along the lines, um, similar to Savage and Jake, it's a good story. Like I enjoyed the yeah. story, and I'll tell you what I really enjoyed was the match itself at Mania. Savage oh, was yes. the title. I am very high on this match. I might be the high man in the internet wrestling community or the wrestling world in general. Four and three-quarter stars this gets from me. Love that. Uh, love that rating. Okay. And it's got blood, which is, of course, a story by itself. We'll hit on that. But what do you think about the finish and or the decision to put the title on Savage?
1: I For the finish itself, I actually like the finish um, because it's... The whole match is just flaring perfect, just fucking him over. Mm-hmm. And this is like the way that he, you know, it's like it's Randy Savage. He's, you know, he's got his 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 shady past, as he's what he used to mention on commentary. And it's like, I I like that he kind of beats them at their own game, and it kind of works for, for what's going on. Um, I think I, on the on the, on the standpoint of the feud, I think the only thing it feels like it's missing is the Savage promo that could have been done, but. We get that at WrestleMania. I'm going to talk about that in a second. I think it's a strange call to put the belt on Savage, considering what happens at the end of Mania, which I'm going mean talk by about. That? What do you well, by... we'll talk oh, okay. about the, the running at the end. But... Okay, Oh, okay, 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 I got gotcha. so, so, it. Okay, so this is the top babyface we're going with, and it feels odd to put it on Savage after the Jake feud was a bust at the gate. You know, like they, they had done this big, heavy angle, and it didn't work. And I know that they're mindful that Hogan's going. But it feels, it's just, I'd say that maybe they were thinking that since he was cleaner and famous but not as famous he would avoid any kind of public scorn. But to me, again, that can't be that much of a concern when you consider again what happens at the end. So, to me, you can say this is the WWF, the faces win at Mania. It is a great match. I love that you've got it as high as you do because I think it went underrated for years. Um, I, I when I would you know, I went a you know a period of years without seeing the match watch it I was like, am I crazy for things? Because again, you know the way that I look at matches, I look at the start, yeah, you know, everything about the presentation, not just the bell to bell, and I love the aftermath, I love the post match, I love the promos, and mm-hmm. for that reason, this is, it's one of those things where you look at it, and I know that you look at things this in this similar way. Could this have been done any better?
2: No, I don't think it could have. Now. Let's talk about the decision to put the title on Randy Savage. I was kind of, uh, you know, trying to break this down, look for more info because it, and we're going to get to this and I don't want to tip our hand for the next episode because things take a a crazy turn in this feud, uh, particularly at the box office. And it's not a turn for the better, obviously, but You know, there is a line of thought. Well, okay, Flair needed to maybe keep the title here so Savage could have had something to go after, after Mania. But and we'll talk about kind of what they did to maybe rectify that in their minds. But I looked this up and there's two very interesting tidbits I've uncovered. One, Meltzer reported at the time, this was in the Observer that Savage renegotiated his contract and had actually been threatening to leave after mania mm, I Two, like two Rick Flair said in his book. And unfortunately I, I don't have the book next to me and I, I'm not going to run down and get it. Uh, yeah. I think Cammy's actually on a, a work call right in front of the book. So I'm not going to say, <laughs> ex, I'm not going to say, excuse me, college student. I have to find my Rick Flair book real, real <laughs> quick here. But um, Flair in his book said that Randy pulled, you know, you know, kind of threw a fit and got the finish change that originally he was set to retain the title here. I don't know how they would have gone about that. Cause again, this is the WWF it's WrestleMania and the baby faces usually get their hand raised, but that's kind of interesting to me that maybe WWF recognized, Hey, it probably is better to keep the title on flair moving for the sake of the feud. But in the moment, I actually liked the finish too. I know a lot of people don't because it, it was very un-WWF babyface-like at the time for a heel, or for pardon me, for the babyface who'd been, you know, just victimized by all this cheating all match long to return the favor by cheating and winning the match.
1: That's the story. <laughs> yeah, and I
2: liked that story, and yeah. it in into the post-match promos where Flair and Savage were bitching about that Savage holds the tights, and that's how he won. And I guess in their minds, that was a way to continue the feud in part because Flair's like, hey, you cheated, you know, you did it once, let's see you do it again. Yeah, I love Um, that. It's a great line. Uh, What we'll have, what we have here is a man who's going to, you know, go around town claiming to be the WWF champion. Um, The heel kind of needing to get revenge is an odd slant, though. And then, of course, in the post-match, We had Flair kissing Elizabeth and I think, and and that was key. And we're going to pick up on this in the next podcast. Again, don't want to show our hand entirely here, but I think in their mind, they're like, okay, well, Flair's going to lose the title, but he's going to kiss Liz. That's going to piss Randy off. You mentioned Randy's great promo afterwards. Yeah. And Randy, even though he has the title is still going to want revenge on Flair for kissing his wife. Yeah. And, 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 you want to talk about the promo? I know because there's a great yeah. spot that Savage has. There's,
1: there's the Savage's post-match promo is so great. Where even though he's won, and even though Flair's bleeding, <laughs> and he just pretty much just kicked his ass, he kissed his wife and loose laps him. He's ri- he's tearing at his gear, ripping it off, talking about how as bad as he thought he wanted Flair here tonight, he only got a piece. And now, after what Ric Flair's done, now he wants the whole thing. I want the whole Nature Boy package. I want the whole
2: Nature Boy package. What's he say? He's like, I didn't think I could be any better than I already was, but now you just made me better. Like, it's (laughs) it's such great savage delivery.
1: Yeah, and and, and I love the contrast of Flair, where rather than screaming bloody murder, he's calm. What we have right now is a man that'll walk around town tonight!
0: Claiming to be the real world champion. Claiming to be the second time WWE heavyweight champion. He'll be claiming it all. And most of all, he'll be claiming the love of that Jezebel Elizabeth. Now, Savage, unlike a lot of people in the greatest sport of them all, we don't cry over spilled milk. We reassemble a team. <laughs> the money, the brains, the nucleus. And we say to our opponent, you did it once. Oh, that. Now, let's see you do it again. One time means nothing
1: to my career. Very different tone. Until he finally fires up and says, "What that one time means nothing to my career." <laughs> like,
2: yes, and, right. and and it's
1: it's also great how it's juxtaposed
2: with Heenan and Perfect yeah. who are losing their minds. Uh, should point out too on commentary, while he does not reach those dizzying heights of the Royal Rumble '92, uh, it's almost impossible to. That's one of the great commentary performances of all time from Heenan. He's pretty damn great in this match, too.
0: I wonder who Elizabeth's going home with tonight. Will you stop. She's already been on that show. Will you, you stop. stop. But then again, if the Indians had more pitching, they'd be a better team. Why don't you stop.
2: I love the part of the match where he got like, I think there's a near fall. It's right after that. And he goes, I've never seen a WWF title match like this before. And Monsoon goes, what? You mean with so much cheating from your
0: guy, Mr. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> like.
2: Monsoon's indignity when perfect comes in the ring and pulls savage off. And because remember, that was something you didn't see in WWF matches a lot. Yeah. At this time. Monsoon goes, that's disgusting. And like, it it really even got over at the audience. Now, we should talk about the blood a little bit. Because earlier in the night in Brett Piper, there was blood. And Flair, I guess, was he always planning on busting out the blade or did he see brett do it and he's like all right i'll do that to add to the match and the problem was there was a no blading policy in this company at the time hart was able to get away with it saying it was hard way and flair like just blatantly bladed on camera
1: <laughs> Flair just zippers himself in traditional wrestling fashion. Like, it's like it couldn't be more blatant that he just gigged himself. Yeah. And you could tell they weren't expecting that. And it
2: was unauthorized because the camera is like right on him. And he's trying to like run away from the camera on the outside to yeah, do it. Because they and don't the cameraman,
1: know. Yeah. So. And that's where the magic of Brett, if you want to give Brett the tip, the fact that he put the blade in his mouth, I think. <laughs> what a man. And then he yeah. spits it out and does it when everybody's looking at him and they still couldn't tell. That's great.
2: And and Brett made fun of Rick. um, I know on Kayfabe commentaries with Sean Oliver, he really ripped on just, you know, how Rick did a hey, Ma, look at me. I'm cutting myself (laughs) on television kind of blade job. So, all right. Love, we both loved the match. We do. Savage is the champion. We loved the post-match interviews. We just talked about this feud being hotter than Hogan and Justice going into Mania, but here's another question. And let's pretend we don't know what happens in the weeks and months afterwards, okay? Forget what happens in the rest of April, May, and June in WWF. Put yourself in the shoes. It's April 5th or whatever, 1992. Did this Savage Flair angle feel like it got even
1: hotter coming off Mania? Yes. I agree with that, and I Uh, think we should... I'd okay say yes and i it's it's a very this is this is a very similar feeling with very similar results to tuesday in texas Wait. where you watch the savage deal point. and you like oh my god they shot the angle on a big show and you come out of this thinking god damn this that, I, this is good stuff i want to see where it goes but there is that thing and again this is not hindsight or anything like that As good as it all is, in totality, you do come away from WrestleMania thinking Flair got his ass kicked, he got busted open, he lost his belt, and he got slapped by Liz. (laughs) There's not a lot else. It can't really go up, it feels like. But But again, they did inject a great deal of steam to this story, as good as it was coming in. The fact you finally got to hear Savage's rampage afterwards and all the aspects of kissing Liz, it feels hotter, but that can sometimes be deceptive, I think. It can, and we're going to stop
2: right there because it, again, on the next episode, it's crazy yeah. uh, what a downturn that feud experiences. Uh, taking a downturn, let's go lower on the card, shall we, Liam? Yes, right now. let's. Okay. Uh, Bret Hart wins the IC title back from Roddy Piper in a great match. Uh, this match feels like it has aged very well. Yeah. Why is that, Liam? Is it blood? Is it We've talked about the blood just a minute ago. Is it just because this is the rare instance of babyface versus babyface done right what makes this match so great and do you agree with the opinion that it has gotten better uh with time it's aging like a fine wine if you
4: will yeah
1: a lot of brett's stuff does age like fine wine i feel like um i think this match works as well as it does because one of the things that i think big babyface matches fail to do is number one actually have a because it's babyface babyface it's tough to have a match like that where the dynamic of the true dynamic of the crowd is captured and you kind of get that in this match and also i feel like a lot of babyface babyface matches don't have the story that this match did and i and it, it part of that is the build, but part of that is the stuff they do in the match where early on like piper's the you know the grizzly vet who gets the advantage at first then brett does it to him and they and he gets a little bit testy, and then he shoves him, and then Piper spits back, and he gets a little bit more heated. Then it calms down a little bit. Then at one point, as it fires back up, and Brett's getting the upper hand, he plays the little trick on 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 Piper where his shoulders hurt, and then he grabs him in a small package, and then it escalates. And <laughs> he's gold bricking. He's gold brickin. Oh, he's gold brickin. And then, and then and I think he's gold brickin. I think he's gold brickin. Then when he finally does it, he's gold brickin. Yes. <laughs> Heenan is so great on this show. Then yeah. Piper does the same thing to him. Hey, look at your laces, and then punches him in the face and, and busts gets, him open. And gets good
2: heel heat, which, yes. given who's going over... Is the way. They, yes, they're doing the right... They're Both guys are acting the right way based on what the match result is going to be. That's really key here.
1: It's really key. And then again, as it escalates and builds, it gets to the point where Brett, who's looking like he's been through a war because of the blood, which is why it was such a great time to do this, the the what the hell use the bell um moment with, with Piper, throwing the bell away, the crowd, you know, is happy that he doesn't go to that length. But then he gets caught and he gets out wrestled and he gets beaten, and then he puts him over immediately, gives him the belt. A, a, a the right guy wins, uh, a true elevation of a babyface, and a story that worked very, very well. It wasn't just two baby faces trying to be the better man. It was it was actually interesting how this dynamic that we had set up on television where in the buildup, you know, they're doing you know these these interesting promos. I know that you caught that good one on the podium. Yes, that was a great
2: interview on the podium. So everyone remembers the classic interview that takes place right before this match, where Piper's yep. kind of being lighthearted. He's talking about, you know, being at the Hart House and sandwiches getting made. It's stuff. It's good. Everyone's seen it before, and it's really good. But there was another good one on the podium where they bring him out and – Roddy Piper, you know, he, he has Brett sit next to him. Yeah.
4: On and the edge talk, of the
2: podium. Yeah. And he talks about, yeah, I'm going to back out of this match. Yeah. And Brett's like, what? And it, it and then it kind of escalates and Brett kind of calls him out for wanting to back out. And it just escalates. I was like, wow, these guys were really hitting their promos leading up. And yep, even really in good. the WrestleMania eight reports, um, when they were just standing there by themselves doing their bits, it was all very good. Um, yeah and you know by the time uh they get to the match and they deliver things as perfectly as they could
1: i honestly think this might be a top 15 wrestlemania match at this point what do you think about that comment i i i would i'm not appalled by it so that says something because i think that i would have a hard <laughs> i would have a hard time thinking like off the top of my head about the top 15 but when you say it out loud it almost sounds like wow there's so many classics that how you know, would it make the top 15 and then when you actually kind of break it down it's like you know what this is pretty goddamn good. And again, it's on the same show as like fucking Flair and savage, which is awesome. So this is this is two two bangers on this one show. I do love, and again, because I hadn't seen this podium promo until the prep for this, I uh, I do love like you say, everyone remembers the classic interview. The one on the podium where Brett calls Piper out, Piper gets heated and says, Well, if that's what you want to go, and he go he fucking goes off on one. Brett goes to leave and Piper grabs him, or vice versa. And he holds his fist up and he's like, I would have had you. Flair mm-hmm. says that. Piper says that to Brett. The WrestleMania promo, Piper turns his back, Brett pulls him around, and that's when Brett says, would have had you, back to him. And Piper pulls the thing up with his, his, uh, the weightlifting belt on his hand and says, nope, no, you wouldn't have. <laughs> and it's like, that's great. Like It's this constant story of like, Brett's good and everything, but is he going to be one step ahead of Piper? And that's very much how it feels in the build, where they position it so well. Where Piper is the person to beat. It's not, and it, it's it, 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 the match and the storyline is shaped towards the outcome. And when they give the outcome, it feels like it fits. It's lovely.
2: Yeah. And this is a very rare TV loss for Roddy Piper. I mm-hmm. think we had talked about it in the 1990 series, and neither of us at the uh, even, I think, were aware that it happened. He did a clean pinfall loss to Mr. Perfect yeah. at the end of 1990, but that was a dark match at a TV taping. He jobbed in St. Louis to Jimmy Snuka in 84. But other than that, like Roddy Piper didn't take pinfall losses. I think those are the only two pinfall losses besides this one he took in this entire run. And obviously, you know, he took some time off and whatnot, but um, yeah. Oh, other, and Ric Flair, uh, as we mentioned too. Yeah. Yeah. It, so, so, okay. He had done those too. Um, can't, can't forget about that. But bottom line, I don't think this scenario with the IC title could have gone any better for Brett. We had talked about in our last episode, you know, him losing to the Mounty, rumors of going to WCW. Did Brett really believe that WWF was going to do what they say? And, oh, you're going to get to beat Roddy Piper at WrestleMania and you're going to come out an even bigger star. Kind of what happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is one time in this, uh, near four hour podcast with the wwf was kind of honest yeah. <laughs> with somebody
1: yeah I, I i guess one of my biggest takeaways was just that this was far more featured than i realized in the build-up to this show i mean there's very good promos not just the one we've talked about but the the individual studio promos that they always do are really good um and you know it's, it's just one of those things where it just takes your back when you look at it with the with the full perspective as we've been doing on these shows Bret hart is in realistically the fourth of the highest featured match and going over Roddy Piper. one well, you have to do the job to the nasty boys for the tag belts. You know, it's like, this is, this is good with mobility. It is. And moving forward, Brett's going to be defending the IC title against
2: Shawn Michaels, who was also victorious at mania. In fact, a Brett Sean program uh, was teased. Even before we got to mania, uh, Sean causes Brett to lose by count out to the Mountie. Brett just can't seem to beat the Mountie Liam. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, I, I know you wanted to reference this Piper versus Sean match on that March to WrestleMania card. <laughs>
1: yes. So Piper and Sean have this match on on that same show. And a fun match. A, a, yeah, a very fun match. And Brett gets involved trying to help and ends up causing more trouble than it than it's worth. Sean gets the DQ win. And therefore, like again, it's just another log on the fire for Piper and Brett. But I think my 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 biggest, my most, my favorite moment was fucking monsoon on commentary. When Bobby Heenan goes, Hey, remember that time that uh Roddy Piper knocked out Mr. T at WrestleMania? And monsoon comes back with, sure did, flatten that bum. <laughs> And this was like at this at this point, Mr. T had
2: clearly fallen out of favor all those years later. Oh, yeah. Um, God, what a horrible 1987 run he had. Remember when they brought him back as that special enforcer?
1: Oh, yeah.
2: That didn't draw anybody. But uh, yeah, Gorilla, you know, you know, he wasn't afraid to bury anybody. He buried fucking Aretha Franklin weeks after WrestleMania three, for God's sake. <laughs> um, So at Mania. Okay, let's talk about Shawn Michaels. He made guacamole, look at the tights, out of that, quote, (laughs) stepping stone, El Matador, in the show opener, right in front of his sister, Ariba McIntyre, no less. (laughs) uh, Those are all Bobby Heenan quotes. Don't anyone cancel me, and don't you quote Bob Heenan, or don't you cancel Bob Heenan either. Um, So I really like, Liam, how Shawn was being hailed as a future IC champ this early. Really demonstrates a commitment to long-term booking. Uh, Brett and Shawn are two guys will obviously be focusing a lot on Moving forward through the rest of 1992, marrying them in an icy
1: title feud at this time. That the right call? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I, I did kind of try and in my head, like, okay, is there any? Is there any reason? It's like, no. You know what? Brett's been booked very well big wins over purpose and piper you are trying to tell people to take sean seriously with the sherry connection and when you look at the rest of the promotion sean feels like such a breath of fresh air the way he's being pushed it's like this is the two guys that you're not gonna put brett with anybody else and it'd be better right now and this is the right guy for sean yeah you mentioned brett and piper being like the fourth top match maybe it's the
2: third top match i don't know we'll we'll get to the other of the Mm. uh, big four matches later in addition to hogan and sid but mania eight is certainly a top heavy show of matches that mattered and matches that didn't there's four that clearly did matter and then the rest to be honest uh, not so much although sean beating el matador was kind of a a deal sean was a guy on the ascent so Hmm. maybe that gets on the right side of the fence but some that fall into this latter category that didn't matter or that i didn't give a shit about at all money inc debuting their trademark shitty finish of walking out against the Natural Disasters in the tag title match. Tatanka, still undefeated, beats Rick
1: Martel in a match that took place in the shadow of the WWF title change. And the most entertaining part of the match is the interplay with Monsoon (laughs) ripping on a a desperate Bobby Heenan. (laughs) Yes, he is, uh, Duggan. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this now. I'm gonna make one
2: comment to the public, and that's it. That that is a great way to start. But they don't talk about the Tatanka and Martel at all during the match, <laughs> except when like Heenan's like incredulous that Tatanka wins. Um, kind of plays it nicely to, um, how flustered he is by Flair losing. But anyway, uh, Duggan Slaughter Bossman and Virgil beating Mounty Repo and the Nasty Boys. That really has the modern feel of just trying to jam everyone on the card. And then in quite possibly the most pointless match in WrestleMania history, we have Owen Hart covered in dip, uh, beating Skinner in just over a minute. Do you have anything you would like to say on these matches, Liam? Now is your chance, or forever hold your peace.
1: Typhoon sucks ass, is my first <laughs> comment. A shambolic effort in this this babyface tag team of the natural disasters. <laughs> is a fast beyond belief. I watched this match last night just to freshen my memory. I, 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 since I was a kid, I remember the spot when Typhoon throws himself and fails to get over the top rope when DBRC low bridges. And it's it's awful. But I, I don't think i realized just how bad he is throughout the entire match. He blows like three spots before this. He seemingly has straw taken a back bump and takes a double clothesline on the back of his head and twists it to take a bump. The the false tag spot with Earthquake, you could hear a fucking cricket fart. There was no noise in that crowd. No one cared that Earthquake got the tag but wasn't allowed in. And when he finally gets the hot tag, again, absolute silence. It's only because Earthquake's got some some fire in his step that him and you know, DiBiase's bumps get the people back into the match somewhat. And they pop for the Earthquake splash or the prospect of it. But Typhoon stinks.
2: (laughs) I'm sorry you didn't use the word that you
1: used in your notes. Diabolical performance from Typhoon.
2: I laughed so hard when I read it because he does stink. And as far as the disasters not being over as a babyface, I'm going to bring up a classic Chadism here. Uh, My good friend Chad Repack. I know he'll love this take. So he always believes that when an act, whether it's a singles or a tag team, becomes – baby face because another heel turns on them that's always a terrible way to turn baby face and that's what happened with the disasters we talked about kind of the uh comedy of errors that transpired where they couldn't even or they just basically lied about what happened at the house show that jimmy hart was involved <laughs> they basically rewrote it um and decided to turn the disasters babyface. but it's just like it's not you know jimmy hart Sort of selling them out and giving Money Inc. their spot to beat LOD for the titles at that house show. That doesn't get the crowd behind the new Babyface Act, the natural disasters, who are going to no. struggle as a baby face Act anyway. So I've got to, I just wanted to interject that classic Chadism there. Chad, there's your <laughs> uh, show mentioned. I always like to mention it on every show. He, get, he really gets off on it. But uh, in this case, I think it's absolutely true with the natural disasters.
1: No, it is. And I'm sure that every listener listened to this heard exactly what what Chad said and thought Randy Orton, the classic example. Yes. And and there's there's plenty of them. I don't know why. Oh, four. Yeah. I don't know why structurally wrestling bookers think that two people you've told us to be assholes. If one asshole is an asshole to the other asshole, I'm supposed to like that asshole. I don't. He's an asshole. Mm -hmm. He's still an asshole. I don't like Typhoon. I don't like Earthquake. You know, they—they—they they, 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 just because Jimmy Hart sold him down the river is not going to give me sympathy for him.
2: Yeah. Earthquake, what had he done the last two years? He nearly killed Hulk Hogan, and then he killed Damien. He murdered a snake, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Um, would you like to talk about Ray Combs?
1: Well, I mean, Ray Combs' jokes on this show did get over better than his Survivor Series 93 effort, so I'll give him that. My other question from this part of the card is why the hell did they even do Owen and Skinner? Like, what? I don't even know what that was going to accomplish in a best case scenario. Yeah, I mean, it didn't seem like they had big plans for
2: Owen as a single. Uh, yeah. He of course goes into high energy uh, with Coco Beware. I don't know if that was any better than this match. Uh, very odd too. Coco and we haven't—I haven't seen how a high energy officially forms yet. Um, but I have made it a couple weeks past WrestleMania eight on my TV mm-hmm. viewing. And, like, Coco teams up with a jobber and loses to somebody on TV. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) We rally
1: rally behind the bird, man.
2: Yeah, so I I don't know what's going on there. Uh, Of course, all those guys at least got to work, Liam. Uh, Due (laughs) to time constraints, British Bulldog versus the Berserker was pulled. No one really missed it or probably even cared that it was pulled. But that being the match that got pulled tells me maybe they didn't have the biggest plans for
1: Bulldog at the time. Remember, Mm. SummerSlam. Not yet set for Wembley
2: at this point.
1: And I think this is worth pointing out. So, considering I remember at the end of 2000, sorry, at the end of 1991, we talked about the depth chart that the company had at the end of 91. And Bulldog was beneath, like, Marty Giannetti, who had just been thrown through the barbershop window, and he was Mm -hmm. below the Texas Tornado, who had just been steamrolled by Taker to build him up for Survivor Series. So he's like, he's not high on the depth chart. And if berserker who as you know shortly after wrestlemania probably gets the biggest push he's gonna get Mm -hmm. and bulldog considering what he goes on to do shortly after wrestlemania i'm not talking about wembley and summerslam i wonder if the berserker would have gone over here to get him ready for what he was about to do which really would have looked interesting in six months time
2: yeah and i wonder if they were like, all right, well, we don't want these guys to do a minute. We can just beat fucking Steve Kern. We don't give a shit about him anymore. And like, <laughs> Owen Hart can do something. And, I and that could and be the minute match. Um, this was the first Mania since the first one with single digit matches. Nine matches here. Uh, first time since the first one uh, that uh, with single digit matches. Mania's two through seven all had 12 plus. This was said to be a strategic move by Vince as even he knew the early Manias had a tendency to drag. What do we think about the format change here?
1: Um, the show does feel better, but it also makes the second half feel like it slows to a crawl. It's a great idea if you've got a good show. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. Like It's a double-edged sword. It benefits the show when there's good stuff, and it hurts the show when there's bad stuff, because when you compare it to a Mania 7, the garbage is its, it's not any better garbage, but it's in and out without having the time to just bore you like a 15 minute demolition versus Katao and Tenru wasn't going to, wasn't going to cut it. So it's three. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) that's true, but it feels more pointless. And, and, and Mania 7 is quite extreme in that case where the short matches feel like they might as well not even be happening. They're there just to get, like get one guy over like the the earthquake Valentine match from the year before and Santana Mounty, that type of thing here. The second half of the show does get time, and I guess it does make this stuff feel a bit more important, but there's the, the problem is there's really nothing to sink your teeth into, and as a result, it's actually quite awful.
2: <laughs> yeah, but this is... Well, we'll talk about Mania 8's legacy in a little bit, but we've got to talk about the coming and going section because it is significant here. Uh, Not just Hogan, but WrestleMania was Piper's last U.S. appearance for a while. He'll stay on for a few more weeks, writes Dave Meltzer, to work the European tour. Uh, Piper leaving mainly to pursue acting, although he may continue to work in some capacity as a television personality for WWF, which would mean maximum exposure and limited travel. Uh, Piper, this is odd. I didn't know this at the time or I had forgotten about this. He did some untelevised Piper's pits after Mania at the TV tapings, including one where he started criticizing Geraldo Rivera and (laughs) talked about how Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas have been arrested and all sorts of other nonsense. That's Dave's words. Uh, Piper's guest was the Brooklyn brawler, and the audience was instructed to respond when they thought Lombardi was telling the truth and when he was lying. For fuck's sake, we know what they're doing here. What the hell is this? (laughs) Well, again, I think they wanted Piper to do like a I'm someone in the media who tells the truth. I think. Oh yeah. And it completely just didn't work. You referenced this a little bit uh, of Roddy Piper radio station deal. He's uh, Mm. does he's on Sacramento to plug Mania, and the DJ asked him about steroids. Piper said he tried them a few years ago, but stopped when he found out they could kill you. The person listening said he was more honest than you'd expect throughout the interview. But Dave writes the way Piper gave that answer made him no more honest than a Hogan. Since Zahorian's testimony at the trial made it pretty clear Piper used steroids uh, from him regularly for many years.
1: Yeah, well, imagine that, you know, he's he's lying. I think Savage had a similar, you know, the line that Savage would hit on the radio shows around this time was that uh, he like he got off steroids because he got PMS or something like that. Like he had his, he had his token response and yeah, this I was Piper's.
2: I think all that was missing for the Sacramento radio station appearance was the uh, immortal son of an unnamed goat line. Oh, <laughs> God. God. Okay. So Piper's gone. Jake Roberts is also gone after being buried he by gets. the undertaker. Put intended. Jake is WCW bound and would later claim he was promised then denied Pat Patterson's spot on the booking committee. Do we believe that?
1: Not really, because it comes from Jake. (laughs) Okay. Um, Having said that, there may be an ember of truth to it, because I do think that when Patterson left, I can see in my mind's eye Jake thinking this is a good time to try and make a move, especially because I don't sense that Jake was exactly blown away with what was going on with him as a heel um yeah, he'd wanted to turn heel for a long time creatively his step is great but he loses the view the, to the savage pretty definitively he's working Taker here that's only going to end one way and i'm again because i mean he, he left anyway so he had his eye out on the door and mm-hmm. i have a feeling that this was his way of like ah you know i'm not really going to get what i want out of being a heel so if I'm going to stop doing this, I can maybe come back in six months or come back in a year or whatever. But I can transition over and take the spot for the time. So I can see there being an ember of truth to it. But, you know, to me, this is also the same time where I think he, he claims he got offered of three and a half million to go to WCW. And Bill <laughs> Watts ripped up the contract in his face. And that's just flat out not true. So yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. um, Meltzer calls the Taker Jake match disappointing. Given the hype, uh, mm. you kind of we talked about you know what was third from the top after the double main event. It kind of was this based on the yeah. television. It was either this or Brett Piper, obviously. Roberts still cutting good promos, mostly yeah. talking about uh, clubbing baby seals
1: <laughs> in the build, and and <laughs> There's they, a lot they, of that. They, yeah, it was really good stuff. Now you know to Jake's belly. Yeah, the I'm leaving belly for the last six weeks or so of his run. You really start to notice it just after the uh, the 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 show with him, the main event when he does the job to Savage. Yeah, so you really could have driven a Mack truck
2: between Robert's head and the floor on that tombstone <laughs> near the end of the match. I don't know if Taker is still shook because of Hogan making him feel bad or what. Not in the notes So I hope uh, I'm not catching you off guard here, but I was watching. It's one of those things that just comes up on YouTube next to the videos I'm watching. Paul Bearer did an interview with somebody talking about how not only did Jake hold Vince up for money to do the job for this match, but Jake convinced Taker to do the tombstone spot outside the ring, and that wasn't supposed to happen originally.
4: Interesting.
1: And And they got yelled at backstage hmm i can believe both of those things i believe but i do i will believe that i think that that's jake holding up for money seems like okay well that's that's on point um mm-hmm. and jake doing that seems like the kind of thing that a guy would do to in essence i mean to me it put over taker but it also kind of protects himself and it gives him a reason to be gone not just that he lost the taker that he, he got an injury or whatever and he's rolling around holding his neck after the match and it's it's kind of, it kind of works i like it yeah, yeah. now
2: there's some real hard feelings with this Jake departure. You can tell because in the weeks after Mania on television, they they show like, I don't know if it was a fan fest or whatever, but it was just the events surrounding WrestleMania in the Indianapolis area. And there was like a wrestler lookalike contest. And there was, I don't know, some convention type deals and whatnot. And they showed Jake on screen and they don't mention his name. They mention everyone else's name. Uh. Like it's a real bear. So this was Uh, a a pretty acrimonious split I think I have a question though we know about the this mass exodus of talent that's happening okay Jake might not be happy with the way his heel character's going he's you know getting offered a a, a, maybe not three and a half million but a decent deal for probably fewer dates in WCW was it a mistake to let Jake walk do you think they could have gotten him to job to take her and have him stay is there a way to make that work uh, or is it just best to get rid of him at this point?
1: I mean, if, if you're the thing is, WWF tends to chew up and spit out heels, and I think that Jake thought that his time had come. I don't think you're going to get him to do the job, to take him and stick around because clearly that was that's what happened. He did the job and he got the fuck out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think there was any doing that. Was it a mistake for him to leave? I think that if they had the benefit of hindsight and realized Sid was about to go. <laughs> <laughs> then, yeah, I absolutely would have thought oh, because that yeah. that that gap is what fucking pillars this company. United. I mean, the Hogan gap is obviously big and broad enough and probably is the one that did the most damage. But it sure doesn't help when Sid and Jake, two of your top three heels, are both gone after yeah. shortly after WrestleMania.
2: And, and say same with Piper. Interestingly enough, the rumor was that had Jake stayed, he was going to put over Bret Hart at yeah. SummerSlam. Uh, SummerSlam was originally supposed to take place in the D.C. area, Landover, Maryland. Uh, That probably would not have happened, though, Um, you know, even if Jake had stayed because of the move to Wembley. Uh, We will talk about that on a future episode, of course. We will also talk about kind of The Undertaker, and it's going to be very interesting to note the rest of his 92 because – Man, he was in a world title situation with Hogan as a heel at the end of '91. Here he is, big win over Jake at WrestleMania, and God, he just farts around with like the shittiest heels for the longest <laughs> time. I think that's a missed uh, that's a missed opportunity. But again, different podcast, different day. Yep, yep. Uh, we can talk about LOD is back after a very short uh, leave of absence, and they are back with Paul Ellering. Uh, they yeah. did an interview at WrestleMania 8. I thought I was cool at the time because I knew who Paul Ellering was. Not all yeah. WWF fans did. Uh, it was pretty clear that in the building, very few knew who Paul Ellering was, that he was their manager in the NWA days. But this was a terrible interview and it had no focus. And on that note, I cannot wait till you see a horrible vignette that takes place post-Mania where Hawk, Animal, and Ellering seemingly all lose their train of thought uh, <laughs> in the same vignette.
1: Well, if it's anything like their Wrestlemania 8 promo or or worse, I can't wait to see it because I don't know who thought all three people needed to do two promos in one promo where it goes from Animal to it goes from Ellering to Animal to Hawk to Ellering to Animal to Hawk to wrap it up. So why this was way too long for what it was for the purpose it was serving it's just rambles and rambles and Animal I am not a fan of Road Warrior Animal Okay. uh as a promo is just goddamn. his just... work with john heidenreich <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well that was exemplary but at this point here in 92 um now he's just yeah you know, the screaming promo with nothing to say and ellering's trying but again I, I i was in a different boat to you i did not know who paul ellering was okay. and probably much to your surprise this didn't do much to make me a fan of his
2: No, the the interview's terrible. I mean, it's just... (laughs) Bobby Heenan kind of tries selling it, bless Mm. his soul. Oh, he does, yeah. He does a good job, yeah. But it's not enough. It's interesting that we talk about, you know, Vince having this fear of mania dragging again with all the matches, so he shortens the number of matches. One gets pulled, doesn't even take place. Bulldog Berserker. But you have two long interview segments. The one that we just talked about, LOD bringing up Paul Ellering as their new manager, and then... Lex Luger is in to Titan yes, Sports, he is. but he is in as part of the WBF. Uh, K. Allen Fry, very upset about this. He was apparently the only person alive that uh, was not clued in. This was being reported in the newsletters wildly that as soon as <laughs> uh, Lex did the job at Super Brawl 2, which was February 29th, leap year day, he was Titan bound. Luger yeah. was absolutely juiced to the gills. <laughs> football, and he was absolutely oh, was he juiced ever? to the gills in this Mania 8 interview as well. Holy shit. Um, Again, part of the WBF here, because there was a non-compete for a year. He couldn't be a WWF wrestler. So the way Vince got around that was he was going to be part of the WBF, because that's bodybuilding. The non-compete said no wrestling. Uh, Meltzer predicting big things for Lex once that non-compete ends. Quote, will be the biggest star in Titan with the dual
1: WWF-WBF role. Your thoughts. Uh, exactly why that will happen is still unknown to this day, um, considering nobody watched the WBF. Too, uh, yeah, This is presuming that the general public is going to give two squirts of shit about anybody on the WBF as a celebrity, which they never will and never did. The WWF, I, I see his point. He's saying that basically somebody who's just slapped all over television is obviously going to be a big star. Doesn't work like that. Luger is so fucking massive in this <laughs> I didn't realise how big he was because obviously like, it's it's always like that thing oh he looks like a, a different it doesn't even it looks like a, a different species at Super Brawl it's like one of the Melter lines, right yeah here he looks even bigger than he does at Super Brawl I don't know if it's because the camera's closer in of course a woman brings in Vince McMahon's milk and gives it to Lex so he can down that halfway through the interview but yeah. he takes his shirt off just to give us a peek and he's so fucking he is the biggest I've ever seen him he's so roided Great shape, and of course, Lex gets in the air (laughs) great lineup. Here, you're doing a great job. Not so sure about the fat guy, (laughs) yeah, that is great. And you know, and you know, he then
2: starts like slapping Monsoon, like, isn't this guy great? And Monsoon's (laughs) acting all That That is pretty funny, but you know, we're talking about how roided to the gills Lex is here. Think about Again. what this. <laughs> think about what is going on outside this promotion. What are you doing, Vince McMahon, bringing in this Roy right into the Gills, Lex Luger, and it, it kind of continues through '92, and then obviously into '93 when they try to make Lex the top babyface. Despite these scandals, Vince still wants to push the same kind of guy. Mm-hmm. So I, I can see why Meltzer would think that because okay, all the roided-up guys are leaving. And here's Lex, and and I don't know, maybe he's going to get away with it or something, Dave's thinking. But, uh, yeah, so Lex Luger in, but only as a member of the WBF. That would not last for long because the WBF doesn't last for long, but that is our next podcast. We'll get to talk about that. Of course, though, Liam, as we come to a close, we must get back to that little business of Hulk Hogan versus Sid Justice, the main event, the final match at WrestleMania 8 the end of the match sees Sid kicking out of the leg drop because Papa Shango of all people missed his cue it's Papa Shango that missed the cue not Whippleman right?
1: I, I honestly don't know the answer to this question because when you okay. watch this it's like <laughs> was Papa Shango supposed to like break up the fall? Yeah I mean because... he is he is so late
2: like he comes out he's just, still like, on the plane when, when... <laughs> yeah. yeah he's looking
1: so confused totally out of place he says, and this is interesting, that he was like, <laughs> he's like waiting behind the curtain at the griller position, waiting to get the key to go out, and no one says anything to him, and he's just like, he's just there waiting and waiting until someone eventually goes, shit, go, <laughs> and he's he goes out there, and he doesn't even run, he just like saunters <laughs> down the aisle, gliding like Razor Ramon almost, like no. you, he'll he'll get this, like, he, his spot cannot have been, I'm gonna break up the leg drop because, or or. The alternative is that they deliberately wanted Sid to kick out the leg drop on Hogan's way out the door, and they sent him out late on purpose. But Whippleman, as a result, just' kind of like gets on the apron and it's just over. Like the referee's developed before Shango even gets there, yeah. yeah he's he just wandering out confused.
2: Bobby he didn't say, "Here's Papa Shango. What a dangerous man and stuff. And it's just like, I remember even a time of like, Papa
1: Shango yeah, I mean, we we can't we cannot state this enough. Having watched the TV, him running in. As a, as a kid, as a fan, was among the most confusing and pointless things to happen in, in such a high-profile match. I have no idea why he was there. He'd barely done anything on television yet. Like, they'd done his vignettes and a couple of squash matches. And I, I I know that you probably think the same as me here, but this entire scenario with Hogan on his way out the door, his last match, this is so unbelievably lazy. Like, mm-hmm. the production of this. Pa- Papa Shango again later on years later would say that like his involvement in this was like a last minute thing. Like they just like day of the show told him, Oh, and by the way, you're going to be running in in the main event tonight. He was originally earmarked for a post-main event with the undertaker, which I think we mentioned on the last show. Makes sense. And so all of a sudden he's here doing something that has nothing to do with anything. And the match echoes this, this, this thread of laziness as Hogan puts in the absolute bare minimum effort you'll ever see. Um, I did note that on the television show uh, television shows previous to WrestleMania, Sid had started doing what I deemed the pussy powerbomb in my (laughs) younger days, where basically he drops to his knees uh, as he does the move to kind of lessen the impact on the guy taking it. I was not surprised to see this happen right before WrestleMania when he's going to work with Hogan so that Hulk could take it easy on the big show. Uh, a, a, A shit main event, a shit finish, and I don't know, again, Hogan just coming in doing this match which is really short like it's mm-hmm. actually a surprisingly short match and this crap finish with like that has nothing to do with anything it's all about just getting through it and you can almost see that in in hogan's demeanor and, and in his performance here he's just getting through it he's just going to get the fuck out of dodge he doesn't you get the sense he doesn't even want the, the pump and circumstance he doesn't want the attention he just wants to get out of the way
2: you're right, and we'll we'll touch on that later on. So the yeah. match goes; it's sub thirteen minutes. I'm looking here just to put that number in perspective: sub thirteen minutes. It's basically the same length as Hogan and Andre uh five years earlier, but Andre was, you know, I mean, <laughs> physically a complete mess going into yeah. that match. So and about I mean,
1: about about three and a half of it is like a test of strength and a bag <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's wretched. So, um. Yeah, Shango, just to get back
2: to him, there was nothing to indicate he had any relationship with Hogan or Sid. It just feels so out of place. So him, obviously they just wanted a second heel out there for what we're about to touch on. So Mm -hmm. Shango and Sid, they're double teaming Hogan, and then that familiar music hits, which was rare at the time. Yeah, Just to play a babyface, now it's what you expect. It's an automatic big pop, but, you know a baby face who'd been off television getting their music played out of nowhere and gorilla and Bobby did a good job there like, wait a minute wait a minute I know that and then it's the ultimate warrior that runs out and Heenan's got a great reaction uh warrior clears the ring coming out to Hogan's aid uh should be noted by the way yeah, and this tipped yeah. off both Wade and Dave about the possibility of Warrior returning here. The Hogan Warrior match from Mania Six was shown on that March to WrestleMania special, and Meltzer said they never would show something like that—a guy who's not on TV winning if he wasn't going to be back on TV. Yeah.
1: So, and they're right we... to think it. And also, it's worth noting in that match they had done redubbed commentary with uh, yes. Monsoon and Heenan specifically talking about the Warrior being great in his his biggest achievements. Yes, that's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, What do we think about bringing
2: the Warrior back in this spot to save Hulk Hogan and to kind of replace him on the top
1: of the babyface depth chart, even though Savage is the champion? I mean, in terms of name value, you're not going to do any better. I mean, considering everything they've done for the last like three, four years, like he is the second biggest star in the the company had. Um, Of course, in terms of the steroid risk, as with Lex, it's just a fucking hilarious choice. Again, Vince on these TV shows talking about absolutely nobody's on steroids. It's an unbeatable policy. It's it's we are, we are the cutting edge in the entertainment world for everything, basically. We are untouchable and infallible. And then here comes the fucking warrior to come along. And of course, he's going to work with Sid, who's just failed a drug test by using a fake dick to piss with, and gets <laughs> caught. Yeah. So this is your top feud coming out of WrestleMania in the main event spot. Sid... With his fake dick and the warrior.
2: Yeah, with who knows what he's got. Uh, Dave Meltzer would write uh, in later years. The person chosen to take in Hogan's spot in the to take Hogan's spot in the company, looking to clean up its drug image, came out for the save of all people. It was the return of the <laughs> Ultimate Warrior, who
1: McMahon had fired seven months earlier. Now, as did you have something to add to that? No, I was just you know I, I guess my only thing is when you say it like that, it, it is absolutely comical. But it's, it's, and it, it's in the spotlight of like Lex being you know and and Sid. It, it's like eh,
2: there you go. Yeah. Uh, as for Hogan's retirement, oh by the way, that elephant in the room. Even with all the hype that Hogan's decision would be at the – that that Hogan's decision would be at the show, he apparently didn't get the memo Meltzer wrote. Mm. Since Hogan was leaving, Titan wanted the retirement. But at the show, Hogan never acknowledged the angle nor said anything about retirement. He even stayed in the Superstars Open after yeah. Mania on TV. Yeah. yeah. Fucking lazy. <laughs> yeah. Really Hogan, and to the shittiness of the match that you kind of hit on there – uh, Liam Hogan. Dave would write, looking like he had aged quite a bit under the pressure, and clearly off steroids with a flat physique. Bid farewell after being double-crossed at a finish next to a guy whose thunder he'd stolen two years earlier. Like, yeah. yeah,
1: quite a bit. Yeah, that, 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 that's a great line. I, I will yeah. just say real quick because I, I wanted to make this point about Warrior before and I forgot the fact they were bringing Warrior back, and of course the idea was Warrior Sid to start. To me, ties into the into the original plan to have Flair retain because yes you're not what you know, if you're going to have him retain at mania to continue the feud you know knowing the way this company books on the house shows and stuff savage probably isn't going to win in the end and even if he did I'm not really sure where you go with that and that's probably not the decision but the idea of going from savage doing the blood feud with flair if he wins maybe he wins and flair gets the belt back but to me it very much feels like this is probably going to end up with flair and the warrior for the title is what they're thinking maybe you know, even even shortly before WrestleMania until Savage does what he does. Yes, and we will talk about that actually quite a bit on our next podcast. Yeah. Uh, I've got that quite a bit about,
2: you know, kind of what they coulda, shoulda, woulda mm. done with the WF title after WrestleMania 8. The only thing here that, that's really interesting about Flair retaining, since this Hogan Sid match doesn't have a real finish. It's just a DQ. It would have been really hard for them to do both halves, the double main event without a true finish or without a baby face getting the one, two, three.
1: Yeah. And that may have also
2: played into it because that's something I've thought about. I think, again, let's go back now. If you could have done Hogan Flair still, if that was still a hot issue at Mania, you could have done this warrior finish. And Because if if you don't want Hogan to lose to Flair, you could have done this exact finish they did with Hogan and Sid. Yeah, with Warrior making the save, and that would have perfectly then set up Flair and Warrior yeah. after Mania. But that is, of course, not what they did. Um, how do you think they could have done Hogan's retirement?
1: Like, yeah. Go ahead. I, no, I, was, I think if you're going to do it, you have to go all in. And it, it, it to me, it screams of the again. We mentioned non-committal from Hogan it wasn't like the WWF at at that point, Hogan has to have made enough of a thing of like, look, no, I don't want to do the big ceremony. I don't want the big, you know, I win in the end. We do the big send off. It's, you know, we talk about Hulk Hogan. We, we, we have banners, we have a big, you know, the video package and all this, they, they, it feels like Hogan, obviously with Hogan, just not wanting that much attention. Just want to kind of sneak out the back door like a thief in the night, which is mm-hmm. pretty much how he it feels. This goes down, and WWF doing that interview clearly with the idea that this was going to be a big ceremony. But at the same time, they're being non-committal too because they don't want to say that it is for sure. Yeah, they're just saying, they, they, they don't want to scare well up their be.
2: viewers exactly. The like like so, if, if if they're saying, "Oh, Hulk Hogan's gone now." What's that mm-hmm. mean for the box office? I think exactly. I think it was noncommittal from both sides. And it's so interesting because that Meltzer quote uh, of it was the return of the ultimate warrior who McMahon had fired seven months earlier, yep. uh, you know, and, uh, you know, bid, Hogan bids farewell after being double crossed on a finish next to a guy whose Thunder he stolen two years <laughs> earlier. That was actually the line I was looking for Yeah. there. It's funny because it feels like a send off for Hogan would be like what they did at WrestleMania six where yeah. he. He's achieved immortality. But uh, the irony of that was when they did that at the time, it was totally stealing the thunder of the new champion. And Hogan stuck around very much.
1: Yeah. And in Vince's mind, you can see that it's like, okay, Hogan doesn't want to commit to the idea to make a big song and dance about it. I don't really want to completely broadcast that he's going. I just kind of want to suggest that he's going to so that, you know, people know what they're in for type of a thing. And then at the same time, it's like the way that it's executed with Hogan just kind of skulking out like a thief in the night. The thing that everybody's talking about at the end is the warrior's back. Mm. And and, and Hogan really isn't news on this show because he just kind of comes in, does his crap match, and then just kind of stands there while the warrior dances around.
2: Yeah, so let's talk about Mania 8 by the numbers, its legacy, yeah. what have you. Uh, the show drew 62,167 fans, which was almost full, but it was heavily papered. Uh, 47,000 paying, $1.25 as the gate. And it did 300,000 pay-per-view buys, which was a new low for Mania. Let us yeah. let me just double-check something here, WWF, because I don't want to get a buy rate wrong on two different shows. <laughs> I, for some reason, I don't know if that number... Is right. Yeah, that's a lie. It's, it did three ninety. So I, I knew it wasn't oh. right as soon as I read it. It did three ninety uh, from from the way I, I'm looking at it here. So it wasn't down too much actually from ninety one, uh, but it was down just a little bit. And it still is the lowest of all time for Mania. It seems the reasons are obvious for that, Liam. But maybe we should restate them anyway. Why do you think WrestleMania eight did the lowest number on pay per view for any WrestleMania ever?
1: Yeah, just to say as well, we say lowest of all time, I mean lowest of all time at this point in the yes. history of WrestleMania. It's not all time, all time. That's yes, um, good point. So I, to me, the reason why this is cold, I think that while a lot of people are going to get caught up in the fact that it's negative press going on at the time, which again does seem like an obvious reason and may well be a contributing factor. The fact is we have been talking since 1990 about disappointing buy rates with only a couple of exceptions to the rule, which was Hogan's return at SummerSlam, Warrior and Slaughter at the Rumble. Almost every other pay-per-view we've talked about has had a disappointing buy rate, but by by, by the standards of the time. To me, this is just continuing the trend. Things are not as hot. Hogan's issue with Sid, to me, it's not hot. You were there at the time, so granted, your opinion on this is far more valuable than mine, but as a viewer watching with hindsight, which isn't the same thing, I'm watching this waiting to be sold for a reason why this match is special. And I don't know if I could say, I'm really interested in your opinion on that aspect because Meltzer wrote about it a lot at the time. He said that it didn't feel like there were a lot of hot issues here. Yeah, yeah. Jake Jake and Taker does feel good. Piper and Brett does feel good, but they're not responsible for selling the show. No. The Hogan match is, and at the absolute best, Flair is, is second and probably, as we've seen historically, a fairly distant second when it comes yeah. to WFPVs during this period of time. Savage and Flair was a good storyline. Was it a deal-breaker? It might have helped a little bit. Hogan in the prime spot with Sid and not really delivering because of all of these external factors that are kind of split in the focus. To me, that's the reason why this, this is... Yeah, the momentum is heading in one way anyway. And when you combine that with what was a fairly lackadaisical uh, push for this show... Um, not necessarily for the show, that's not fair, but for the issues on this show, um, I feel like it was kind of a, it was only going to end this way.
2: Yeah. And you know, it's funny if you go to the newsletter coverage at the time, which obviously you and I have both gone through heavily, uh, mm-hmm. in preparation for this podcast, WrestleMania very much took a backseat to the scandals in yeah. the coverage. Now, I, I don't know, like I said, I was 11 years old at the time. I did not know about the scandals. I was looking forward to WrestleMania Eight, but I was also just an eleven-year-old kid who liked the WWF a lot. Yeah, um, Hogan and Sid was not my favorite thing in the world. I can tell you, when I was eleven, I don't think I was super into that at all. Um, there were two great four-star matches on this card. That's a Mania first. Yeah, uh, that two. You know, having two. Ma- As a matter of fact, even if you look at like the history of Mania, I'll go on the record here. I think Hart, Piper, Flair, Savage. Yes, there's some obvious. um Combos that beat it, like WrestleMania 10, but there's not too many WrestleManias mm. that have a better one-two combo. I think even the modern ones. And I know some people are going to disagree with me on that, but I don't rate a lot of those modern matches um, mm. as
1: high as some other people do. You're humming me. Are you uh, no, agreeing, no, no,
2: Disagreeing? Or
1: no, not not in disagreement at all. I am. I'm just pondering if I can if I can come up with any that I would I would say would be as broadly obvious as WrestleMania uh, WrestleMania 10. Um, but I think that you'd probably be pushing towards the ones that are fairly obvious candidates and i think that it's probably gonna hold up as well as if not better than most of the ones people would suggest yes yeah, 17 people say with austin yeah. rock and the tlc match
2: uh yeah. i think that'll be there too but okay so we've got the two great four plus star matches a mania first but there's a number of bad matches as well as we hit on particularly in that second half of the show at the time after i watched the coliseum home video liam I did think this was the second best mania ever behind three. Mm. And I think that's still probably true. I would say after, I mean, what do you think the second best WrestleMania is through the first eight, if it's not this one, I I know it's, there's certain metrics where it was not successful, but in terms
1: of you just like wanting to watch, I mean, wanting to watch, it's probably as much as of a joke as this is going to sound the year before had a, Better mix of good matches on the actual show itself. I mean, there's a lot of Drek, yeah. but there's the, you know, the what it had, had Warrior Savage, it had some fun stuff in the undercard. Um, and and the bad wasn't as bad as the stuff that you'd see nope. in the, uh, in some of the earlier WrestleManias. Sure.
2: Uh, but with this Flair Savage angle, you hit on this a little bit here. Um, bad Angle and Warrior's Return. You could. Still, make the case that this promotion felt somewhat hot. Mm. If you were, if you're an again an eleven year old kid like me, in you your shoes, about, yeah, yeah, and you don't know about the scandals, right? If you, like I remember specifically, sixth grade, I was in at this time, homeroom. I didn't order the show live, but someone who did came in and said, "Ultimate Warrior's back," and so this was still a talk in school, which mm. would be a far cry from the end of '92. Uh, I'll mm. uh, I'll bring that up when we get to it. But, yeah, I I don't know. I think you could still make a case that, all right, this promotion's got some interesting things going on. Uh, Of course, it would very soon fall off a cliff business-wise, Liam, and we've got this kind of Dave Meltzer quote to wrap it up here.
1: Yeah, I think that you're, you're dead on that point, and I think that this hits it hard too. Meltzer says, in hindsight, you can probably point to the week of the Donahue show or Hogan's farewell after that WrestleMania as the end of the first glory period of Vince McMahon's Titan Sports. Uh, it was eight years since McMahon raided Hogan and Mean Gene Oakland from Vern Garnier and Piper from Jim Crockett, uh, and they showed up on his television in St. Louis. And he started touring nationally, gobbling up a large percentage of the marketable talents. Yep, and now, <laughs> of course, the, just <laughs> yep. that you had that
2: massive t- talent influx coming yep. in in 1984. Now we have a mass talent exodus at the top, not just Hogan. Yep. And we are about, Liam, to enter the dark period of the promotion and we will pick up the rest of 1992 the next time but by god we did it we did this
1: in under four hours i can't believe that we did it in four hours (laughs) this was awesome i you know what the scandal stuff it's to me you you look at this even with 30 years now of, of you know distance i think that some of the things that you 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 spot and identify in terms of behavior and patterns of behavior and and reaction to scandal and confrontation. Boy, it really, uh, it, it strikes hard and it's a real window to the soul, which is the term that you've used before. And it's, and it, it's kind of a window to the soul for a lot of people. We talk about the product aspect of WrestleMania, that the buildup, which was you know so, so on some of these issues, it's, I like that you pointed out that you can feel that the promotion itself does not feel, when you watch this show, it doesn't feel like, oh, well, now things are going to tank. You don't mm-hmm. get that sense at all, because the, the injection of Warrior feels, even if you know Hogan's going, because if you're if you if you're in your shoes, for example, watching it every week and, and invested already and not just into it because Hulk Hogan's a celebrity wrestler. Um, yeah, okay, so one guy moves out, another guy that you like moves in, and I remember you saying that you kind of liked Warrior more than Hogan anyway, right, mm-hmm. when you were younger. So yeah. in that sense, I can totally see, like, okay, yeah, The WWF is moving along, and of course, as we're going to get to, we are about to enter the dark period of the promotion because reality is different from perception, which is probably the lesson Vincent Mann probably needed to learn at the start of this podcast.
2: Yeah, the rest of 1992, I would say the period between WrestleMania 8 and WrestleMania 9 is one of the oddest in company history because it doesn't really mesh with the four years that come after it. And it doesn't it certainly doesn't match with the oh, eight cool. years that preceded it it mm. sort of just feels like this
1: waiting period of okay when's hulk hogan gonna come back <laughs> yeah and those periods are fascinating i mean there's a few of them throughout you know dotted throughout the wwf's history and and this is certainly one of the more prominent ones and, and one of the darkest so we are going to get to that in our next episode of this timeline here on squared circle gazette radio kyle tell us what's going to be next what kind of t- period of time are we talking here All right, so we're going to handle
2: April through June on the next podcast. What we will be talking about on that is a little teaser is, well, (laughs) rocked by the loss of Hulk Hogan and Scandal, WWF business falls off a goddamn cliff. (laughs) And spoiler alert, uh, this was not a hot promotion. The main event scene completely craters. Uh, flair and savage dies at the box office sid leaves under auspicious circumstances a disastrous ultimate warrior papa shango angle and then not much help from the midcard either save for brett and sean not a lot of interesting newcomers on their way and then finally liam we will wrap it up by finally bidding adieu to the world bodybuilding federation a disastrous (laughs) pay-per-view
1: WBF, we hardly knew ye. Yes. So that will be coming up on our next episode of this timeline. Kyle, I cannot thank you enough. Not just for obviously spending so much time with us here on SEG Radio doing this timeline on this particular episode, but the folks, I really want to stress the amount of work that went into notes for something as far-reaching as this. Kyle, tremendous work. Uh you're awesome on the show as always. But uh, yeah, a, a phenomenal effort, obviously, in preparation for this entire timeline. But for this show, uh, I think this may be probably, is this not like, the most work we've done on notes? Or at least yourself, like
2: in the past? I, I, I think it's funny because I, before we started recording today, I noticed our last Skype call, we had a 45 minute discussion just about revising the notes. And just think about this, Liam. After today, you will never have to worry about getting an email from me saying, hey, you know, I've changed all those notes around again. I just <laughs>
1: We don't know that yet. That may still happen.
2: No, no, I'm very confident, you know, with the scandals <laughs> gone. I have—I yeah. feel like I've got more of a mastery of the subject matter going on in 92. And it's going to be just sort of like filling in the, you know, in the pieces. And we'll be able to do what we do best. And I think we want to do best uh, on a podcast. That's breaking down the booking, coming up with alternate ideas. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the rest of 1992. But uh, I'll be blunt here. I think
1: we nailed the show today. I think it was very good. I loved it. I was looking forward to it when you sent me the notes and you were second guessing them. I I said to you, I actually think no matter what, this show is going to end up being excellent. And I hope uh, that you, the loyal listeners, feel that it has turned out that way. So with that said, I want to thank Kyle Ross one more time. Thank you, the loyal listeners, for sticking with us for the whole show. And we look forward to joining you again to talk April to June in 1992 in the WWF. So for the great Kyle Ross, I am Liam O'Rourke and we are out of here. Talk to you again soon. Peace.